uh, I was featured in a, um, let me just pull this up. I was featured in a Newsweek article today uh, called Right Wing, Right Wing YouTuber. Steve Bannon Guest predicts how court hearing will play out. Look at this. Canadian right-wing legal analyst and YouTuber David Fry, who goes by the pseudonym Viva Fry, recently claimed that Steve Bannon's trial on charges of contempt of Congress will be wrapped up quickly because of an anti-Bannon jury selection. This is inception, people. And it goes on, and it's a great article. Um, I think it's actually quite flattering, despite the name-calling. But if being accurate makes me right-wing, like I have recently changed my Twitter profile to, I don't consider myself right-wing, but I do consider it a compliment to be called right-wing. This case is politics. It's pure politics, and it's politics that has been played out before the committee hearings mm-hmm. and Testify, now Viva. played out in court. Tell it, tell uh, it like it is, was, Viva. People, uh, I was going to start off with Justin Trudeau today, but, uh, well, the reality is I couldn't get to that tweet fast enough, but it was probably all for the better because nobody wants to start off a sidebar with vomit in their mouth which is typically what happens when we have to listen to Justin Trudeau um, talk. The fact that we're going to get this stream going two minutes in, given everything that happened to me today, nothing terrible, just it's ridiculous. I just finished shooting the post-millennial exclusive daily recap. So they're going to publish that later with like three minutes to spare. We only have Julie Kelly. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I, if I, if I call her a reporter. I don't like what, know what a reporter is anymore. All that I can say is that Julie, as far as the events of January 6th have been going, has been doing the most amazing coverage out there and not letting people forget. And not only not letting people forget, digging into that, which needs to be dug into because nobody else is doing it. Uh, we only have her for one hour. Uh, we're going to carry on afterwards with Barnes. And I think Eric Hundley is going to pop in and make an appearance. We only have Julie for one hour. So I said I wasn't going to waste one minute more than I had to with the intro. You all know the standard intros. No legal advice, no election fortification advice, no medical advice. Super chats, if I don't bring it up and you're going to feel miffed, don't give it. We're simultaneously streaming on Rumble, yada, yada, yada. You know the shtick. Julie, get ready. We're Here live. Here I am. Okay. Okay. So this Yay. is our first time actually meeting uh, in real FaceTime. I mean, not not in real life, but I know very little about you, actually. And I, I realized this as I was looking you up today 30,000 foot overview for the crowd who may not know who you are and then I'll get into some standard questions but then really into January 6 who who are you Julie who am I this is a question I often (laughs) ask myself um so I am a writer I just call myself a writer it's easy right covers all the bases for American greatness I've been with them for since 2017 before that I was kind of doing freelance writing really focusing more on agricultural and food issues. I'm a former cooking instructor. So uh, I started covering food issues, which sort of led into political issues. And then after Donald Trump was elected, started covering the Never Trump movement. Uh, So it's just been really an interesting progression over the past, um, let's see, about six or seven years since I started uh, writing full time. Um, So that's enough, that's enough to cover. Okay. Uh, everything now, uh, else I cover on Twitter. So if people want to follow me there, Julie underscore Kelly too. I, I do a lot of chatting there, as you know, Viva. Oh yes, yes. Now, now, if I may ask, where were you born and raised? I born and raised in the suburbs of Chicago. So my hometown is Naperville, Illinois, which is a western suburb. Right now, I live in Orland Park. 
So born, raised here, uh, worked in politics in suburban Chicago uh, for years before taking about 10 years off to be a full-time stay-at-home mom. Got back into politics, and that's how I sort of fell into, into writing about politics. So, but I am a uh, lifelong Illinoisan. All right. And um, if I may also ask, like, what did you study in university? Were you, did you study journalism? Did you study something else that might ex- you know, explain how you got to where you are? Sure. So I attended Eastern Illinois University and I got a degree in communications, a minor in journalism. I worked in the TV, radio and TV station there, did an internship actually in Capitol Hill my senior year with Senator Alan Dixon, who is a Democratic senator from Illinois. So my background really is in broadcast journalism. When I worked in politics, I worked in communications in a press capacity. So I wrote a lot of speeches, press releases, policy documents, that sort of thing. So that's how this all sort of dovetailed into what I'm doing now. And politically speaking, have you always been what they call a conservative or did you start off on the other side of the aisle like many other guests on this channel no never never i never toyed with the other side i am though a recovering neoconservative so i'm i'm really sad to admit that that for a long time i considered myself a neocon so that would be the bill crystal like bill crystal was my political idol Uh, when i graduated from college that's really when he started um, you know, Bill Clinton had been elected and he really started the counter uh, political strategy against the Clinton campaign, a Clinton presidency. So I was a big follower of Bill Crystal, big fan of George W. Bush, et cetera. Not anymore. So I call myself a recovering neocon. And if you could, I don't think I know what that term actually means between you have conservative, liberal, I, I guess you have Republican, Democrat, which are the two thingy things. And what's neocons- uh, neoconservative? So neoconservative, I think, removed a lot of the cultural issues at the time. So if you think back to like 1992, after Clinton and the Democrats really swept everything, and there was uh, that was sort of the Pat Buchanan wing versus, say, the George Bush wing. And so as Patrick Buchanan, I think old school conservative, uh, maybe paleo conservative, people would call that really focusing on a lot of cultural issues. The neocons like me sort of tended away from those issues, focusing more on fiscal and foreign policy. So really behind the whole idea about nation building, um, you know, overseas, strengthening our military, obviously after 9-11, supporting things like the Patriot Act, which I really regret, uh, and the whole Bush doctrine, George W. Bush doctrine, which was, um, you know, this whole bringing democracy to the Middle East, which was a huge failure. So anyway, I think that that best explains the difference between a neocon and a traditional conservative. Now that you mentioned it, I do have to ask, I, the, the term regret, I think a lot of we use interchangeably with now I realize I was wrong. But when you say I don't even remember what I understood the Patriot Act to mean back in the day, back in the day, 9-11, I remember exactly where I was, everything about that day. Um, at the time, we didn't necessarily know that it was as a result of maybe some holes in security or some 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 some. Uh, improper uh, surveillance to begin with, Mm -hmm. but it was used as the pretext for passing the Patriot Act, going to war after war. Um, What Back in the day, what did the Patriot Act mean to you? What did you understand it to be at the time? And how did you think it was ever going to be used? 
So it really coalesced all these agencies. I mean, that's really where we got the Department of Homeland Security. Um, it was, they blamed this lack of correspondence or connection between all these powerful agencies at the federal level at the time for missing a lot of the signals that uh, led to 9-11. To so, but it also massively expanded the surveillance state. And that is when you saw huge empowerment um, uh, resource allocation by Department of Justice, which opened up the National Security Division, um, which now has been weaponized, as we'll talk about, against American citizens. So, um, and I'm sure Robert knows about this too, but, you know, I, I was supportive of those measures at the time, as I think a lot of Americans trusted our government to use those powers judiciously to be very careful how they were going to be used against potential foreign terrorists. Now we see, and of course, 2016 was the perfect example, lying to a court that was put together to specifically target foreign enemies then used uh, against American citizens, lying, dis, uh, misleading that court intentionally to allow for the spying on Donald Trump and his campaign. Um, and so that I would say, I think a lot of people recovering neocons like me really regrets how much we back that didn't ask questions and didn't support people like say Rand Paul, who's been really, and his father been critical of that from the very beginning, because now we have a complete disaster, weaponized state against half the country. And they are, they are not uh, pulling any punches when it comes to using those powerful tools against American citizens. What would you describe as your turning point? Um, Trump's election. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. It opened my eyes to three major things. Uh, I was always sort of the, um, what would George W. Bush call it, conservative, compassionate conservative when it came to immigration. Um, I think also a lot of the international trade agreements, I see how that's backfired on so many communities, especially where I live in the industrial Midwest. I see how it's decimated places like central and southern Illinois, uh, where, you know, I went to school. Um, and then, of course, the whole idea, what Eve and I were talking about, the idea of nation building. So I think those were three big um, eye openers to me. And without Trump really exposing that, uh, what this conservative movement has brought us or and has not brought us, more importantly, I think I, I definitely have to credit Donald Trump for a huge uh, awa awakening for me and I think millions of others, too. Julie, you said at one point you took 10 years out of everything to be a mom. Uh, mm -hmm. If I uh, Irrelevant, but how, how many kids do you have? But also, uh, how do you get back into, you know, I don't want to say the, 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 the working world. How do you decide then after 10 years of that, what do you do to get back into what you're doing now? Such a great question. And I really appreciate you bringing it up because it did take at least 10 years off. I have two daughters. Um, one just graduated from Syracuse. She's actually headed to law school, Robert. So maybe she can work with you one day. And then my youngest just graduated from high school and she's headed to uh, St. Mary's in at uh, Notre Dame, Indiana. So she, so, uh, but I, I, took 10 years off. I was a stay-at-home mom. I devoted everything to my daughters, to my husband as he was building his career. And I'll tell you what was the best decision I ever made because now as I'm looking, you know, a couple of weeks now to 
both of them being gone for the first time, I really can look back and I don't regret that I missed one single thing with them. And actually being a stay-at-home mom was so valuable when I re-entered, I wouldn't really call it the workforce because I've been working at home really ever since, doing political consulting, then cooking classes, and now writing. Um, I think being a stay-at-home mom, developing patience, endurance, uh, prioritizing what's important, what's not important, and I think also uh, a fearlessness that I did not have um, in my 20s when I started my career so it has been not just valuable, invaluable to me personally, but also I think been a huge help to what I call the third phase of my life, which is now kind of building this new career for myself. So I, I really appreciate you asking that, though. For for the moms out there, the women who are working, and now you're staying home with kids, and you're thinking, what am I going to do? You know, there is uh, there's this is hugely gratifying, invaluable being at home, but also. Uh, it doesn't mean that that's the end. There's certainly lots of other opportunities when when it presents itself. When January 6th first happened, uh, what was your initial response or reaction? Because I, I think different people at different places had different reactions. There were some mm -hmm. that accepted the mainstream media narrative. There were some that didn't accept that but didn't necessarily suspect uh, potential federal involvement, informants, infiltrators, instigators, et cetera. And then some of us were immediately suspicious because of our historical awareness of like events, one might say. What was your initial reaction? I was definitely at the latter, what you just said. I was actually laughing. I feel bad, but I was laughing at the media portrayal of what was happening. I thought, this is absurd. What, why are these people practically in tears? And I think I point to one of my tweets that day um, where they had Jacob Chansley, the QAnon shaman, who was had taken Mike Pence's place at, in the Senate, the deist there. And I said, I think I would choose this guy to run the country basically over anybody else who was in that Capitol building right now, wouldn't you? Um, I thought it was ridiculously overblown as it was happening. And then, Robert, to your point, and I'm sure you've the same, you know, you get the red flags when everyone's singing off the same hymnal, which they were right away, using that word insurrection, as I write about in my book. It started the middle of that afternoon. Joe Biden came out and called it an insurrection. George W. Bush and his wife, Laura. Those things don't happen on accident. So I think my coverage of the Russia collusion hoax, everything that unfolded there, Robert, I'm sure you did too. Just You were just like, mm-mm. This doesn't just happen like this. So I think I was a very early skeptic uh, of what was unfolding that day as I was watching it. And Robert, I think you were in Washington. We live streamed the day of where I remember what I thought at the time. And I didn't think it was a totally peaceful protest. I didn't think it was an insurrection. In retrospect, now I look at it and say, was it pockets of violence that are used to characterize the entire protest? Or was it pockets of peacefulness that were the exception to the violence. I'm probably going to go out on a limb and say I believe it was the pockets of violence that were used to characterize the entire protest as, mm -hmm. as an insurrection, especially seeing what, what happened in Canada with the Ottawa protests. But like, Julie, when do you say I've got to start digging into this because what I see happening now uh, is doesn't smell good? Well, I think one of my first articles, I think it was June, uh, excuse me, January 11th of 2021, where I said the Capitol riot will be used 
to silence what they call the big lie. And so what we saw right away, and we we see to this day in the January 6th committee, and I'm not saying you know, I'm some like soothsayer, but um, it was evident that the events of that day were going to be used by both sides to shut down any criticism of the 2020 election. Of course, what was happening that day, which is the, one of the most overlooked, intentionally overlooked aspects of January 6th, is it wasn't really the certification of the Electoral College. It was that there were enough Republican senators working with House members to push for this 10-day audit commission. What was going to happen for 12 hours was a public vetting of election fraud in six states. And that's what was happening when the first breach occurred. You had Ted Cruz and Paul Gosar starting to talk about what happened in Arizona. And they were going to protest those electoral votes and call for this 10-day audit. Um, that is not what Trump and his supporters wanted shut down. That is what Democrats, the incoming Biden regime, people like Mitch McConnell, who made it very clear he opposed uh, that audit commission. And so that is one of the most overlooked aspects uh, of that day. Um, and so I think that that's why it, a lot of it lends itself to the idea, what I call it now, which is an inside job, that a lot of the same interests who brought us Russiagate, who brought us Adam Schiff's first impeachment, obviously the second impeachment, um, also brought us January 6th. There's no way you can look at how the Democrats and the media and Repu establishment Republicans have exploited this four-hour disturbance more than 18 months ago and just be like, oh, wow, wow, they sure were lucky that happened. You know, they sure were lucky that some people broke some windows and caused problems. No. That's not how things work anymore uh, in our federal government that has turned against half the country, certainly Donald Trump. So I think that that was the initial um, purpose was to was to silence what was happening, what had happened in the 2020 election. What really caught my eye, though, was seeing what I call the political prisoners. And that is the DOJ with the help of federal judges denying bail to nonviolent protesters based on the fact that they were had participated in this insurrection. And of course, that's still a big issue that I cover to this day. Yeah, were you surprised by the scale to which you have people who traditionally fit the definition of bail, uh, whether it's uh, looking at just common practice or looking at the Constitution, the Eighth Amendment, or looking at the statutory provisions that enforce it, and that here you have most of the defendants, and maybe you can describe what this is for people who may not know the full scale. Most of these defendants are older. Most of them have no criminal record. Mm -hmm. Most of them have not been accused of any violence. Mm -hmm. None of them had any of the tools or weapons of violence. Uh, there's been no proof that there was some advanced conspiracy to commit violence. Uh, and yet they are not only being denied bail, they are being detained under some of the most punitive conditions around, so much so that Russia has identified it as a human rights violation, mm -hmm. um, and that they have been detained now for more than a year. Some are going mm -hmm. on 18 months. Uh, can you, uh, were you, one, were you surprised at the scale and scope of it, but also uh, can you describe for people, you know, that that's who these people are? These were not the Antifa types who ran rampant all summer and faced almost no consequence or BLM, or in the name of BLM, protesters who rioted and looted and burned, and most of whom faced no consequence. 
These were mostly older people who were briefly inside the Capitol without permission of uh, Speaker Pelosi, or in some cases, not even inside the Capitol. So mm -hmm. could you describe for people what the typical charge is and what the typical defendant is and how many of them are still in prison to this day? So this DOJ has sought what's called pretrial detention orders for more than 100 people related to their involvement in January 6th. And as you guys know, and I'm not an attorney, I feel like I should get an honorary law degree from insurrection. You, though, because now mm -hmm. I have all these school law terms that I'm using. I have a PACER account. And so uh, I really like became obsessed with reading all these filings. And that's when I really became shocked at what I saw this DOJ prosecutors accusing. So they've sought pretrial attention orders for over 100 Americans. That means denying bail. To your point, Robert, almost all of these people have no criminal record. A lot of them have public defenders. Uh, the majority of them do have charges uh, for assaulting or attacking or interfering with law enforcement. Um, but that still does not mean, as we saw throughout 2020, attacks on law enforcement, including at Lafayette Square, which uh, prompted the lockdown of the White House uh, the beginning of June of 2020, still does not mean that these people should be in jail for a year, 18 months, going on two years now in some cases before trial. So you do have the majority who face some sort of assault of law enforcement charges, but you also have defendants accused of nonviolent obstruction felony. This is the 1512C2, Robert, I know, and Vivi, you're probably very familiar with it as well. This is a post-Enron law, obstruction of an official proceeding, it had to do with witness and evidence tampering that's now been bastardized, weaponized by this DOJ. And uh, about 240 Americans face that charge. They've added that felony to misdemeanor cases, say in the case of Tim Hale, uh, who went inside the building, he walked through a door, no weapon, committed no violence, didn't assault anyone, um, but he was slapped with this obstruction charge. You also have the militia, groups, the worst militia work groups in the history of militia groups, because they went to the Capitol with no weapons, which is really weird because militias usually have some sort of weapon. They had absolutely none. Nonetheless, you've got um, more than a dozen Oath Keepers charged with seditious conspiracy. I believe there are four or five of them who are held under pretrial detention orders now. Three of them have been held in the D.C. jail since February and March of 2021. Then you have the Proud Boys, also a group, not charged with any weapons violations, no assault charges, no vandalism. But again, this extremely rare seditious conspiracy charge, five Proud Boys have been incarcerated now for over a year. Their trial was just moved again, April to August, August to the end of December which means you will have people like Joe Biggs, the alleged head of this, will be in prison almost two years, a veteran, no criminal record, no violent charges, in jail for almost two years before he even has a chance to defend himself at trial. They are political prisoners. So hopefully that gives just a little bit view of those uh, of what's happening with these pretrial detention orders. Dozens have been in this D.C. gulag, I call it, which is part of the D.C. Department of Corrections, a prison set aside specifically for those charged in the Capitol breach probe. So we also have not just political prisoners, but we have a political prison in the shadow of the U.S. Capitol building as 95 percent of Republican 
leadership in Congress continues to ignore this. Robert, I guess maybe just feel this one while I have it up. At this point, this is not, is this not a Sixth Amendment violation amongst others? Uh, and can you prove prosecutorial misconduct, judicial misconduct, yada, yada? I well, think I mean, I no doubt answer. you can prove a lot of the misconduct. I mean, in my view, these prosecutions are selective prosecutions in violation of the First Amendment, freedom of expression, freedom of association. In some cases, such as Joe Biggs and some others, you can argue freedom of the press as well. Um, the In terms of, you can argue to a certain degree, a Second Amendment violation in that some of these people were just defending themselves from Capitol Police attacks and now have been prosecuted for simply trying to defend That's themselves right. from Capitol Police attacks. The Fourth Amendment violations have kind of been routine and regular uh, in that a lot of searches have taken place and a lot of searches were probably taking place beforehand by informants, instigators, infiltrators, others, whether it's Ray Epps, who's more publicly known, or many people who are still unknown. Gateway Pundit has identified one. Some defense lawyers have identified at least up to 80 different people who are informants, instigators, and infiltrators on the ground that day, probably engaged in illicit surveillance and searches of people's materials in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Uh, Fifth Amendment violations of due process. Uh, Sixth Amendment, I I would argue, certain aspects of the grand jury indictment process as well. Sixth Amendment violations uh, in terms of right to counsel, right to confrontation in certain cases because they're being held again without conviction of a crime. Uh, without, uh, you know, until in their trials just being almost indeterminately postponed. Uh, their, their conditions have been bad. And then you can also argue Eighth Amendment, without question, Eighth Amendment violations. Unfortunately, we have a court process that in politically motivated and politicized cases, I'm down here in Austin, Texas, dealing with seeing what a civil justice process looks like when the defendant is named Alex Jones. And it looks a lot like, a lot like the January 6th cases, uh, a complete mockery of justice in America. Now, can you, uh, Julie, also describe for people what these some of these conditions are, that there have been people denied medical treatment who needed it, who are being detained, uh, people who have lost their jobs and their ability to support themselves and provide support for their legal defense because of this detention. Could you describe some of the conditions of the detention that if this was Russia, the U.N. would be holding uh, meetings right now, emergency meetings right now of, of human rights abuses? Yeah, I mean, if this were and if this were happening under a Republican regime with Democrats, you would have people like AOC, you know, with their invisible handcuffs cuffed to each other outside of this D.C. prison, demanding the release of these political prisoners. None of that is happening. Of course, the D.C. gulag, many reports of physical mental, emotional abuse, sleep deprivation, um, in some instances bordering on starvation, the food is not edible. Of course, that's nothing new in any prison or jail situation. Um, But you have DC guards who, I mean, we have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Louis Gohmert really forced themselves into this DC jail to see the conditions. And they have a whole report on what they found. Um, And so aside from the inhumane conditions, which certainly um, are are evident there. They also can't access their defense attorneys. They are forced to be vaccinated. Otherwise, they can't meet one-on-one with their defense attorneys. These people haven't seen their family members, not only in person, but on any sort of device where they could see them. Um, and they can't 
get access to their discovery. Jail guards and DOJ are messing around with their discovery, trying to prevent these defendants, detainees from accessing, um, you know, protected material like surveillance video, which is under strict protective orders. So they can't even create, they can't even build their own defense. They can't even meet with their defense lawyers. And at the same time, I think the real villains here, aside from DOJ, are these D.C. district court judges. And I'm talking about judges appointed by Trump, by uh, Ronald Reagan, if you can believe. There's two judges on there who should have retired long ago, Royce Lamberth and uh, Tom Hogan, who have been particularly cruel to January 6th defendants. Um, at any rate, so these people are trapped in a circle of hell in the nation's capital where you have prosecutors, judges, the media, who have nothing but open contempt for Trump supporters and treat them accordingly. Um, and their families are going through hell. Their families have been destroyed, bankrupted. They've lost businesses that they spent their entire lives building. Uh, they are uh, just anathema in their communities, in their churches. Uh, you know, they are really uh, branded as terrorists because that's exactly what Joe Biden, this regime, the media, and of course, plenty of Republicans have said as well. So uh, it's just, it's a horrible, inhumane, cruel uh, uh, fate that these people are suffering right now. Julie, I, I'm not wrong in thinking that the bulk of the charges by, I, mean, I don't know which, which defendants are accused of violent crimes. The majority are parading and picketing in a restricted area, uh, trespass. What, I mean, the one is, um, uh, what is it? Conspiracy to commit sedition. I think that's the most serious charge. Are there any, are there, who are the, who are the defendants that are accused of actual violent crimes? Not that it could explain any of this, but what are the violent crimes and what are the bulk of the defendants accused of in terms of violent versus nonviolent crimes? So the bulk of the violent crimes would be assault of a federal police officer, um, not just federal Capitol police are federal, but also DC Metro. But as Robert said, and this is uh, something I've covered extensively, uh, police officers were given their marching orders early on that day. They started attacking the crowd, people standing outside on what they called restricted grounds, attacking people who were simply standing out there, a lot of people, you know, waving flags and they were singing. And all of a sudden you'll see a video and flashbang will go into the crowd and people are being hit with this flashbang, this stun grenade, which you're not supposed to really throw at into a crowd of people. There's speculation, and I think justified speculation, that two fatalities that day, Kevin Greeson and Benjamin Phillips, were the result of being hit by stun grenades by police officers who threw them at these men. They were left unattended to. You had uh, people outside, not, I don't want to call them protesters, just rally goers who had to help these men um, and find some sort of medical attention. Both men died of fatal heart attacks. This happened before uh, Michael Byrd shot and killed Ashley Babbitt at near Point Blank Range at about 2.45 that afternoon, and also the death of Roseanne Boyland, which looks more and more, given the video that we've seen and eyewitness testimony, that her death, contrary to what the D.C. coroner said, was an overdose of amphetamines, which was a lie, is that her death was largely a result of excessive force used by D.C. Metro 
and Capitol Police in this Lower West Terrace Tunnel where she was trampled, uh, where she possibly was asphyxiated by this very potent gas that the police were using in this enclosed area. And then video of uh, DC Metro Police Officer Lila Morris looks like hitting her repeatedly in the face with a baton uh, as her lifeless body laid on the ground outside this tunnel at about 4.30 on January 6th. And can you describe for people some of the other anomalies that have yet to be fully either investigated or disclosed concerning what happened that day? Because one aspect is the fact that the Capitol Police were the ones initiating and instigating violent conflict with the crowd, Mm -hmm. uh, including, it appears, responsible for the death of maybe the all four people that died that day. Um, and that uh, contrary to what some federal judges have said in sentencing, which we'll get to in a little bit, but the uh, uh, but also there was unusual security lapses that day. There was unusual. There's been videotape evidence that's gone missing videotape evidence that has is still hidden uh, that has not been disclosed to the public. That's not being disclosed through FOIA, not even being disclosed in some cases mm-hmm. to the defendants or their counsel. Uh, can you describe some of the, uh, uh, the, the, you know, Kamala Harris's, where she actually was, has mm-hmm. not been fully explained. Mike Pence, where he actually was, has not been explained. The so-called pipe bomber, who's never been investigated or indicted, which seems odd, mm-hmm. of the DNC uh, that day, uh, where the bomb magically didn't go off. So uh, could you describe right. some of the other evidentiary anomalies, missing evidence, evidence that people have sought that hasn't been turned over, that also might be relevant to what really happened that day? I mean, there's a lot. You just covered really the bulk of it. But there are every week now we find out new interesting wrinkles like now these Secret Service texts from January 5th and 6th are missing. Well, why is that? And why now the reporting today is that uh, the system wide migration where they were told to erase all of their devices are set back to factory settings on January 27th of 2021. Now, this would have happened under Joe Biden's Department of Homeland Security. This was passed, you know, when he took over the not peaceful transfer of power. But of course, he was president then. This was his DHS, which is oversees the Secret Service. So why were these devices set back to factory settings? And why are the missing texts belong to Washington agents who were responsible for numerous protectees, including, of course, the president, also Vice President Pence, and also Kamala Harris. Robert, what you know, and Bibi, you probably do too, is that this DOJ, DOJ lied to a grand jury and lied to the court for over a year, claiming that Kamala Harris, as the incoming vice president, Um, so she was under Secret Service protection on January 6th, that she was in the Capitol building when the insurrection happened. Well, comes to find out, thanks to Politico reporting this, Kamala Harris had been taken to the Democratic National Committee headquarters at about 1130 on the morning of January 6th. She was at the Capitol building, she said, for an intelligence briefing, then went to DNC headquarters, which is a couple blocks east of the Capitol. Now, why did she go there? The bigger question is how did Secret Service, her detail, miss this alleged explosive device that had been planted, we've been told by the FBI, the night before outside of the DNC headquarters? How did they miss that? 
Uh, the photograph we've seen, we've only seen one. It's a little pipe that's underneath like a bench thing by DNC headquarters. How did that happen? And then why was it almost a year before the public found out about this and DOJ had to confess to a federal judge that, oops, that's not true. Kamala Harris wasn't in the building. She was at DNC headquarters. Does this have something to do with the erased um, Secret Service text that would give us some insight as to why she was taken there, as to why we just found out Secret Service on their own that afternoon when Trump had every intention and had told people at his speech that he was going to the Capitol with them, um, that suddenly they decided to take him um, back to the White House? And then also the mystery of Mike Pence. Also, we were told by the DOJ that he stayed in the U.S. Capitol building. That's not true either. We're still not exactly sure his location, but he was taken to some sort of loading dock near a parking garage. Certainly not within the building, but that's the basis for numerous crimes, right? That idea that Pence and Harris were in the building, therefore um, causing the building to be off limits because they were under Secret Service protection is the basis for thousands of criminal charges, misdemeanors, but nonetheless criminal charges. So it would be nice to see those Secret Service texts. We'll see how much people push to get them. But it's important to note that those were erased after Joe Biden became president and his DHS, not Donald Trump's. Even more interesting is that for those who don't know, the Secret Service was compelled to produce those. Where were they compelled to produce those texts? Because they were, in fact, compelled. And then they said, we updated our systems and lost them all. What was the exact timeline and and, uh, context? Well, I believe it was the inspector general for the DHS who wanted those texts as he was investigating, told to investigate what happened with the Secret Service on January 6th. This is a Trump appointee. You see the Washington Post is sort of making him the villain that somehow he can't be trusted. But he's the one who came forward and said, we've asked for this for over a year um, and they have not produced them. And now we've been notified they've been deleted. So I'm not even sure that, Robert, maybe you know this. I couldn't really follow this. There were two House and Senate committee who wanted this also. But I don't recall that the January 6th committee had asked for any records from uh, these this secret service about January 6th. Not, not initially, o- only very recently after this all became public did they, oh, well, of course we asked for it, but uh, they only asked for it now and when they knew it was gone. And so the n- not a, a terrible surprise there. Now, the uh, another aspect, can you describe in terms of how this process has worked? Not, you know, it's obvious in the bail hearings, but in the discovery process and the timing of trial and jury selection and ruling on issues like this uh, novel interpretation of the obstruction statute to apply to, as you note, people who weren't trying to obstruct anything. They're trying to have their voice heard to make sure the constitutional process for contesting electors went through, not to stop it, not to prevent it, not to preclude it. Uh, that's that's one of the big lies the media has told and some of the judges have repeated in this case is that there was any effort to obstruct anything. There was a, just the opposite to make sure they actually performed and discharged their constitutional duties. And you know, you know, Vice President Pence might not be up to speed on what those duties are. Apparently, he can't read what John Adams and Thomas Jefferson did. But uh, putting that aside, can you mention? Uh, can you discuss how bad the judicial bias has been on things like discovery rulings, the timing of trial, jury selection, and how it, how the judges have been in many and in sentencing some of the insane sentences that have been issued? 
Uh, can you describe what that has been for many of these January 6th defendants at seeing the ugly side of American criminal justice? I mean, I would just describe it overall as un-American. Um, it's nothing that I, as an outsider, not uh, a lawyer, ever would expect to see. I mean, certainly we know that there are serious problems with our criminal justice justice system. Um, but this, uh, I believe, is is a whole new a whole new level because these people are trapped. You have judges who not only are signing off on pretrial detention orders, then denying release when the defense attorneys come back and petition for their clients' release, denying it again. They are allowing DOJ repeatedly to blow through discovery deadlines that even the court has tried to enforce, but nonetheless, they don't because the idea behind all it all, all of it, January 6th is so unprecedented that it it should allow for exceptions to the law. That is basically what DOJ is arguing and what judges are going along with. While this discovery trove is so immense, DOJ has never dealt with this much video before. So therefore, even though, and one judge said it last a year ago, Judge Trevor McFadden, you don't charge people first and come up with the evidence later. That's exactly what DOJ is doing. But do judges like Judge Trevor McFadden throw out charges that were made in January, February, March of 2021, and a year later, DOJ still doesn't have the evidence for it? No. They repeatedly deny, every single judge has, dis, has denied change of venue motions, which should be a no-brainer, not only because it's Washington, D.C., but you have the sideshow of the January 6th committee hearings, which is only of interest to people in Washington, D.C. The rest of the country couldn't care less unless they're forced to watch it because every network picks it up. Um, but this is only of interest to Washington, D.C. So uh, there's only one judge, Judge Nichols, who's actually overseeing the Bannon trial. He's the only judge to uh, rule in favor of dismissing the obstruction of an official proceeding count against one January 6th defendant. Every other judge has denied motions to dismiss this, this, this very novel uh, charge. But Judge Nichols did. DOJ actually has appealed his ruling, and now it's been docketed at the D.C. Circuit. So it will be very interesting to see what the circuit does there, because if they uphold, Robert, you could probably talk about this more, if they uphold Judge Nichols's dismissal of the 1512C2, this is going to have a huge downstream effect, not only on pending cases, but people who've already been convicted, pleaded guilty, and are sitting in jail, like Jacob Chansley, uh, for pleading guilty to this 1512C2. So this is... Uh, very, that's very interesting. But he's the only judge who has really, you know, put his foot down with anything related to DOJ. Everything else, the judges are just going along with everything that this uh, this Justice Department wants. This D, I should say, DC U.S. Attorney's Office, Matthew Graves. He's the one running the show, along with Lisa Monaco, the Deputy Attorney General, longtime Obama loyalist, uh, confidant, and Russian collusion architect, Lisa Monaco. Exactly. And can you describe for people just how insane the D.C. jury pool is? I've described it to people that Martin Luther King had a better chance of getting a fair jury in 1950s Birmingham with an all-white Southern uh, jury that opposed integration than does anybody associated with January 6th in the District of Columbia, where almost every juror thinks of themselves as a personal victim 
of what took place that day, just like every judge does. Can you describe about how these juries uh, often, you know, they, they are not being honest when they're asked questions before jury selection. Jury selection is not very detailed. Uh, the, a, a good the a good juror is just a juror who isn't doesn't want to lynch you before the trial, um, as opposed <laughs> to after the trial. And that uh, the, the nature of it uh, of how quickly they've made decisions, how they haven't even applied the facts, they can't explain their decisions after the verdict. They, that they're applying laws in ways that make no sense. Can you describe just how bad the jury pool is in the District of Columbia, especially as to these cases? It's horrible, and, and you just said it. You said it perfectly, Robert. Is that people in Washington D.C. view the events of January 6th as a personal attack on their their private fiefdom of Washington D.C. That all these deplorables, you know, you have one judge, Beryl Howell, she's like, "You traveled all the way from Texas to Washington D.C. to well, yeah, it, it's his nation's capital. Like, it's not your personal little fiefdom, Beryl Howell, or any of the judges." Like, I hear them say that, and I have to laugh out loud. Like, well, how dare you travel? from Arkansas and come into, you know, the Capitol Hill. That's for people who are far more educated and sophisticated than you. Like, that's the whole tone of it. So it's, I mean, I kind of have to laugh, although these people who are trapped in, it's not funny at all. But at least they're not making any bones about it, right? I mean, they consider themselves American aristocracy, right? They are the crown. They, these are their little subjects. You don't just walk into their shrine, the U.S. Capitol building, which is funny because we've been told the Capitol building was built by slaves. And after George Floyd, they were taking down all kinds of statues of people uh, in the U.S. Capitol. Now, all of a sudden, it's like, you know, it's like a like the holy cathedral. So at any rate, that is how they view it. Several defense attorneys have conducted surveys of potential DC jurors. It's as bad as you think, you know, 70, 75% considering January 6th an insurrection. Even people who are not engaged in violent behavior are traitors. They are terrorists. They should be treated accordingly. I mean, this is a city that voted almost 94% for Joe Biden. So they can't get a fair trial. And now you have the January 6th committee, as I said, this is causing even more problems for these defendants. And you have judges just ignoring the whole thing. None of this matters. The judge on it made a over the summer, last summer, when the hearing started um, and you had a defense attorney raise this issue. This is causing this is further poisoning a highly biased, um, contemptuous jury pool. And Judge Ahmed Mehta said, I don't care if the January 6th committee comes and reads its report on the steps of my courthouse. We, I am not moving this trial. Well, guess what? He's probably going to have to move it because even um, someone like Judge Mehta, an Obama appointee, I think finally is recognizing how this conflicts, creates, really strips these defendants of their rights um, because they have no relief and it's only going to get worse as the trials, uh, scheduled trials anyway, are, are uh, coming up. And you have this January 6th committee continuing to ratchet up the temperature and not back off. So um, that's, you know, it's just really it in a nutshell what these defendants are up against and their attorneys are up against as well. Julie, what you're describing, this to me, is a black pill because it, to the idea of what's going on, I, Robert and I saw it from day one. I was like, okay, it's a, it's, it's, a, I've seen hockey riots that were more <laughs> violent than that. And right. it, what you're describing is it's, I know some of the uh, people denied medical treatment for a broken hand, how they got a broken hand in custody. Uh, I also have questions. Mm -hmm. 
so set aside the black pill for a second. You're immensely well-versed in this. How do you do it? What do you do? Do you read Pacer? For those of you who don't know, Pacer is like the online docket uh, source. Do you have people on the ground? Do you have inside information? How do you go about getting the information that you've got? Um, thanks for that question. A lot of it does come from Pacer, two, two sources. So Pacer, which is the online service where all the um, filings are, are made. They're not made public. I've probably spent $5,000 since January 6th um, getting all of these motions. But that's really where I find a lot. And then secondly, was listening to the hearings because, of course, under COVID, almost all, well, really all of the hearings um, I could listen to online, which, which was great um, and disturbing at the same time. But I could hear what these judges were saying. And I, you know, I've listened to grown men sob in front of these judges, men charged with the parading, as you brought up, Viva, the parading offense, a class B misdemeanor petty offense. The chief judge, Beryl Howell, said before January 6th, the court never even dealt with. I've listened to grown men cry, begging for mercy for these judges who give them none. And these prosecutors who are sick and twisted and gratified by inflicting pain on people they consider a lower caste of Americans. So the PACER, the filings, and then the hearings have been very helpful. Also, yes, I have been in communication, remain in communication with defendants, detainees, and their family members. So I hear, unfortunately, almost every day, the painful um, you know, things that these family members are enduring as their son uh, is in custody for 16, 18 months. Um, you know, their husband is, they're trying to raise young children, worried about what, you know, the fate, you know, what's happening to their loved one in this gulag and certainly what's going to happen to them in the future. You know, this DOJ is threatening life in prison for those accused of seditious conspiracy, basically bullying them into taking plea deals. We're saying if you're convicted, by a DC jury, which probably will be, if you're convicted, we're going to ask for life in prison if you don't take a plea deal because the government does not want the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys cases to go to trial. And Robert and Viva, you know why? Because they'll have to reveal all the government assets, undercover FBI agents and informants. We know we're already involved with the Proud Boys. They're going to have to reveal all of that in trial. In trial. They don't want these cases to go to trial. So they're using every bit of leverage that they can to torture these people into taking plea deals. And a lot of them are not. So I would just ask people to continue to pray for them um, and give them strength because the only way we'll ever get the truth, unfortunately, is through these people who are being persecuted and tormented by their own government. Now, the before we move on to some solutions to sort of wrap things up, uh, in term, have has the government ever disclosed through this? Because the court and the government has frequently uh, referenced QAnon. Have they disclosed who QAnon is and whether there's any ties between QAnon and certain three-letter agencies at the United States government? They have not. That's a great question. I have not gotten that question. Um, but they do cite QAnon you know, several times in, in documents related to defendants and that they were brainwashed by QAnon. Uh, but no, they have not uh, said anything, revealed anything about QAnon. And of course, the judges, as you can imagine, are very incurious about uh, QAnon, except for what they believe that people, you know, 
should not have followed QAnon. And people like Ashley Babbitt, of course, got what they got, what came to her because she allegedly was a QAnon follower. But no, they have not uh, revealed exactly who or what that is. A peculiar lack of curiosity. Um, now, yeah. speaking of solutions, uh, the one uh, solution that I've been recommending to people is that there needs to be, as part of at least those people that are on the populist side of the aisle in the House and the Senate, potentially for Trump as well, in a, any or other candidate 2024 presidential bid, is that it's time to scrap the District of Columbia as an independent federal judicial district. <laughs> That's a federally created district. It doesn't have to exist. And we are seeing in these cases, as Viva's been covering with the Steve Bannon case, that the District of Columbia is not capable of impartiality by the prosecutors, by the judges, or by the jury pool. They're, they, again, you know, make 1950s Birmingham look like a beacon of impartiality in a civil rights case or a Klan case by comparison. Um, what are your thoughts about that as a possible, one of the possible uh, uh, solutions that should be recommended as part of witnessing the horror of the, what this process has become? It is the only solution, and I'm so glad that you brought that up, and I would love to see the details about how that can be done. I mean, look, you've had six jury trials already. DOJ is batting a 1,000. They have an undefeated record in six trials. Every uh, count, every defendant found guilty on every count, unanimous verdicts in record time. The case of Guy Reffitt, who was the first defendant, never went inside the building. This jury took less than four hours to deliberate before they found him guilty of the obstruction of an official proceeding. They don't even know what they're talking about. One juror joked it took us longer to order lunch than to find this man guilty of five counts, including obstruction, which has never been used this way before. And now DOJ comes back and calls 1512C2 a, a crime of domestic terrorism and wants Guy Ruffett to go to prison for 15 years, which the judge probably will go along with. So you're right. We have to dismantle this little personal, I don't even know what you would call it. Uh, it, it, it it's so rigged. Get rid of the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. Absolutely. That has to be number one. Completely defund it. Dismantle it. Don't need it. If you need a local prosecutor, fine. Move political trials outside of D.C., whether Virginia, Maryland, wherever. Um, this D.C. district court, same thing. They should not be able to handle any political trials. You saw the big difference between Michael Sussman's and you know Steve Bannon or anyone else's. There is no arguing that people can people on the right can get a fair trial, a fair shake. Uh, in our own nation's capital, which is really says a lot about where our country is right now. So yes, that absolutely has to be done. I hope there's a huge movement in the MAGA or populist right to get that done and force these Republicans, because you know, they don't want to touch this at all. Um, but we're really going to have to drag them kicking and screaming to do it. Guy Reffitt, for those who also don't know, that was a story, Julie, unless I'm mistaken, about the son who ratted out his father to the FBI uh, about him having bragged about having brought a firearm to the D.C. area. That That is the guy Reffitt? That is correct. Yes. So, yes, it's, it's, they're breaking up families. Now, what else do you yes. think in terms of, I mean, clearly the swamp cannot be in charge of judging the swamp. So that's part one, to institutionally dismantle the federal judicial and prosecutorial process in the District of Columbia. And I think as an additional remedy, uh, there are some statutes that allow this in certain kinds of cases, certain tax cases, as an example, 
But I think every defendant in a criminal case, in a federal criminal case, should have a, a right. I think it should be established or is established constitutionally, but the courts have ignored it. So maybe at least pass legislation that says any defendant in a criminal case should have a right to transfer the venue to his home, his mm -hmm. home residence. Let, if he's so guilty, his home jury will be happy to convict him too. It's just if he's not so guilty, then that won't happen. And also will transfer judicial control to the mm -hmm. local judges. Because when local judges were deciding bail, they were doing things very different than the judges in D.C. were doing out of the gate. That's why they moved as many cases as they could there. Uh, what do you think about those and uh, any other proposals you think of where we need change in the law so that this is less likely to happen again? I really hope that lawyers like yourself and others can put together exactly what that legislation would look like. I think it is absolutely necessary, has to be put together before even Republicans, if they do take the House, this has to be ready to go. Um, because now we're going to have another six months of trials, of charges, of this craziness coming out of Matthew Graves' office, now calling 1512C2 an act of domestic terror and seeking a terror enhancement in Guy Reffitt's sentencing. But that's coming for everyone. You have three other men who've been convicted by jury trials. That's coming for them, too. So that um, that absolutely has to happen. You know, I go back to, and you know this, Robert and Viva, I covered also the Whitmer I call it fednapping hoax. Quite a different outcome of a jury of legitimate peers in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan, in the Western District of Michigan, where even though the defense was, uh, ha their hands were tied on numerous occasions by the judge and what they could present to the jury, nonetheless saw exactly through what this government FBI hoax was, acquitted two men and uh, had a hung jury on the other two men who, of course, DOJ is going to retry them. Their new trial is August 9th. Um, but that you're talking about two totally different outcomes, right? Um, is that you have people in the rest of the country who don't view the FBI and DOJ and, of course, the nation's capital as some sort of sacrosanct place where Americans are not allowed to you know, especially Americans on the right, are not allowed to exercise their constitutional rights. They consider them subhuman and they're treating these people as such. So that has to be front and center. Matthew Graves, the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, has to be completely dissolved. Um, it is as corrupt as the FBI. Uh, it is, you know, it's its own little Stasi. And I'm not even sure what the comparisons would be. Um, but, but this cannot continue. Now, where can people uh, sort of wrap up? Where can people find you, where people can continue to follow these cases and interests related to these cases? Uh, as a little side note, Robert Mueller was very fond of the D.C. federal prosecutor's office, but that's another story for another day. In fact, uh, he magically uh, was there when certain events happened when Bill Clinton was president and somehow he got as a Republican, a rare nomination at the end of it. But uh, that you can find those at the hush hush at vivabarneslaw.locals.com. <laughs> but uh, where else can people find, where can people continue to follow the very good, important, critical frontline work that you're doing on this and other issues? Well, thank you both for having me. I hope I can come back soon. This was the first time. I can't believe time went by so quickly. So I hope so. Um, all my work can be found at American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Um, I do a lot of just sort of live reporting or posting of motions, as you guys know, um, on Twitter, Julie underscore Kelly too. I'm also, also at Truth Social and Getter, Julie underscore Kelly. 
Um, so that's really where people can find my my coverage. And not only will I be covering January, I continue to cover January 6th, but I also think the Whitmer trial is on some levels more fascinating than January 6th because it is a window into what this government, FBI particularly, is capable of. Um, and so I will be filing that new trial when it starts in Michigan on August 9th for the remaining two defendants. Julie, you are always welcome back on this channel. And we Yay. pronounce it the Whitmer, the Whitmer trial or the Whitmer Hi. kidnapping. Uh, Julie, <laughs> I, I sincerely thank you. Not You're one of, I don't know who else is covering the Jan 6 case in as thorough detail as you. And it's amazing. It's, it's, it's black pilling, but there's a white pill in there somewhere, but people have to suffer, unfortunately, for other people to wake mm. up. Um, okay, Can I you, offer one more quick thing before please. I go for yeah, people please. who want to help um, the families or uh, the legal help by lawyers, which are desperately needed to donate uh, to patriotfreedomproject.com. If you can't donate, and I certainly understand why, especially with what's happening, you can write to these detainees who are in jails, not just in D.C., but across the country. And I know it means a lot to these detainees to hear from Americans across the country. So um, I always like to try to end with some hopefulness where people can can do something because people feel so hopeless when they hear uh, what's happening. Julie, you're, you're, you will come back. Guaranteed. Yay. Good. Now, we're, we're, we're going to stay live. Robert and I are going to talk about okay. Bannon's day three trial. But, Julie, thank you for everything sincerely and stay strong. And we'll talk okay. soon. Okay, you guys too. Thank you. Have a good night. Oh, that was one second too early. She was going to say you too. Robert, <laughs> hold on. I'm going to go back this way. That's better. Yeah, I think um, that's better. Robert, we're, people in the chat, we're going to go for a little bit longer. Hunley's popping in, I think, in like 15 minutes uh, to say hi. Robert, first of all, where are you and what are you doing? The uh, she didn't get the uh, the Stewie reference, so uh, <laughs> not a Family Guy fan. I didn't initially either because I'd never watched Family Guy until I, you know, it was showing up uh, the excerpts or or showing up in my YouTube feed, and I was cool, like, oh, the, the, cool, the, cool whip. It's... Yeah, exactly. The, the, the little guy's funny. The baby's funny. A little crazy, but funny. <laughs> the uh, uh, where's my money is still my favorite part <laughs> from the bookie experience. But yeah, I'm I'm in Austin, Texas. They're busy railroading Alex Jones down here. Uh, that the cases get crazy. It's almost unimaginable that the cases could get crazier and crazier and crazier, but they do. Um, I'm not as counsel of record or anything like that. I'm just here to help in whatever capacity I can in terms of getting the story out and then whatever other way he wants me to help, I'll help. The uh, but I mean, they're now saying he can't talk about the First Amendment, he can't talk, he can't say he's innocent, uh, he can't say that what he did wasn't outrageous. He can't did he can't defend himself basically at all. Uh, in fact, and not only that, on the damages issue, which is the only thing they're allowing a trial on, they're going to allow all this inflammatory evidence, fake experts to come in and talk about white supremacy and things that have nothing to do with Alex Jones because of the political hack lawyer that's running this for the Sandy Hook uh, cases, who's glad to grandstand in front of the press, who tried to plant fake stories about me when I was representing Alex Jones. That's Mark Bankston, the guy's bottom barrel gutter level lawyer ethically uh, and a nut job and a lunatic who belongs in an asylum. The uh, uh, well, you know, they want to bring in so quote fake experts apparently uh, to uh, to attack everything related to Alex Jones and things that have nothing to do with Alex Jones. Well, Alex Jones not allowed to defend himself at all. Not only that on the damages issue, you know, the pertinent question is how much damage did Alex Jones cause anyone? Because these are people who never once sought a retraction or correction until the eve of trial. 
These are people who never apparently had a problem with anything Alex Jones was saying until lawyers knocked on their door. Uh, the And so, uh, you know, how much is Alex Jones at fault for any trauma they experienced related to their children's death? Wouldn't the shooter have more to do with that? Well, that the not only can no evidence be presented, no lawyer can even reference it. So the jury's going to be led to believe that any trauma they've experienced related to a school shooting is all Alex Jones's fault. That's what a complete crock the court process is down here. Robert, I, I remember uh, not being politically conscious or even conscious. I just remember thoughts from the time. I do remember people were blaming Alex Jones for people harassing the families for being crisis actors, FBI um, agents, whatever. That's what I remember as being the damages of the alleged consequences of the alleged defamation. What, what's my memory accurate like? Is, is that well, about, yeah, right? Well, yeah. The whole general narrative was always fake. That's why they had to pretend Alex Jones destroyed evidence, because the evidence disproved their theory. Jones didn't initiate or instigate or originate any of this stuff. Jones, uh, the 99.9% of what InfoWars printed and published said Sandy Hook happened. That's what Jones said the very night it happened. It wasn't until year. If you go into the complaint, I was stunned when I first read the complaint. I was like, most of what they're complaining is about seven minutes of words about two years after the incident on something that almost nobody watched or observed out of, out of millions of words published and broadcast. And like they tried to pretend that there were people who stalked the family related to Jones. That was all false. That was always false. They, there's nobody that's going to present testimony as to that. So that's why they needed to fake the evidence. That's why they needed to have a fake case. The judges have to pretend that, uh, you know, not allow even an, think about it. This is an Austin liberal democratic jury pool one of the most liberal democratic jury pools in the country. And they're scared of that jury hearing the actual evidence of what happened. They're afraid of even that. It's got to be an orchestrated case where they pre-scripted a story that the evidence rebuts. So how do they get away with that? They don't allow Alex Jones to present that evidence. They don't even allow his lawyers to mention it. So it's a complete crock. It makes the Chicago 7 look like a paragon of fair trials. Um, and they're just going to railroad him and hope for a crazy lunatic verdict like the Westboro verdict, which was like $70 million, or the Charlottesville verdict where nobody defended it, which was $25 million. They want some crazy award to uh, uh, because they want the jury to not know all of the key facts that relate to the defense. And well, so it's, it's a pure railroading. Well, if I'm playing uh, not devil's advocate, but the, the fair middle, not the middle ground, just to compare it, in Oberlin, Oberlin got sentenced to like 30 some odd million dollars in damages. It was more than the punitive damages were allowed and they brought it down. And people, and that was from, they had real, most of those damages were economic harm. This was a business that got wiped out. And so they had real damages here. You have no economic damages alleged. Nobody claims they're out of pocket because of anything Alex Jones said. It's solely emotional trauma, but there's apparently no evidence that Alex Jones caused them any emotional trauma. So what does the judge do? Oh, you can't tell the jury what actually caused them emotional trauma. Just hear them tell these very traumatic stories that don't relate to Alex Jones. They relate to what a school shooter did that uh, also might relate to other things in terms of school safety and other steps that were not taken that could have protected their child's life uh, and just blame Alex Jones for it. And Alex Jones' lawyers are not even allowed to say, well, did was that caused the, the, the emotional trauma from the death of your child? Was that caused by the person who killed your child? Not not the person who said something two years later you probably never even heard. 
they're not allowed to make that argument. They're not even allowed to make it. I, I have to be careful in the questions that I ask you because I don't want to ask you a question that you're not allowed to answer. Uh, they're hoping for... I'm, I'm not representing him in this capacity. I'm just so speaking of my own opinion. Okay, so they're hoping for a $50 million judgment that's going to bankrupt oh, yeah. Alex Jones. Yeah. Bankrupt... Bankson's been hitting it publicly. We're going to ask for something big to stop it forever. They want to bankrupt Alex Jones. They want to bankrupt InfoWars. And they want to bankrupt anybody. And they want to use him as a Julian Assange-style example to scare and terrorize anybody from ever raising the kind of questions that parents raised at Uvalde that exposed how much police and uh, school official corruption was involved in the failure to save those children's lives. They don't want that to happen again. And so the goal, and they don't want independent sources of information, period. And that's that's their objective. And so the uh, the, the goal is to not only bankrupt them, but to scare off anyone else from ever asking questions. You don't want to end up like Alex Jones. That's what they want to be able to say. In order to get there, they need a crazy verdict. And how do you get to a crazy verdict? The judge rigs the trial. And that's what's happening in Texas and Connecticut. Two corrupt judges rigging the trial. That's just, you know, I, I've held back at times in the past, but this is absurd. This is laughably absurd. And it's sad and pitiful. And the courts need to be called out for it. They're corrupt, politically motivated hacks who are creating an Alex Jones exemption and exception to the law that makes a mockery out of American justice. The court system is as much on trial in Alex Jones's case as Alex Jones is, and the verdict is that the court systems have failed abysmally. They have everything Jones said this case would become and this case would ultimately be is exactly what it has become. It's become worse. He said it would be a kangaroo court process. This gives kangaroos a bad name. <laughs> Robert, uh, so the chat just asked, you know, they, they sued Remington, they sued Alex Jones, did they sue the school? Did they sue uh, the I, only I don't one? Mention. Only one parent sued the school. The rest did not. I mean, I mean, at, at what point does this group of plaintiffs that keeps cashing in and cashing in and cashing in in terms of money and and power? How long do we give them immunity because they suffered a horrific, horrifying tragedy? Did, do they have permanent immunity? Do they get to blame people that had nothing to do with it? Do they get, get continue to get to line their uh, their line their pockets? Do they continue to get to uh, politically take away other people's rights? whether it's speech or Second Amendment rights. I mean, at some point, there's got to be a limit. Suffering a horrible tragedy is a horrifying event, and it deserves and warrants sympathy. It does not deserve or warrant your ability to make yourself rich for forever by suing people who had nothing to do with it, nor does it give you the right to strip the rest of us of our First or Second Amendment rights because the gun is not what caused the death. The shooter and the things that went into the inadequate safety response is what caused the death. Some uh, I see Eric Hunley in the backdrop. He's going to pop in in a second. But Robert, can anything be done? He, let's just say uh, Jones is going to yeah. get. Oh, uh, uh, people continue. Yeah, continue to support Alex uh, in whatever capacity you can, and then there'll be more news about that. Uh, anybody who thinks Alex Jones is going to go gently into that good night has got another thing coming. You know, the re irony is he probably would have semi-retired four years ago, six years ago. You know, he, he had achieved a lot of what he set out to achieve. It's because they decided to do this to him. And to set an example so that nobody else would come up and be like him or want to be like him, that he decided to fight back. And so he'll fight back come hell or high water. So the uh, just stand with Alex Jones. And uh, because even if you disagree with him, dislike him, et cetera, his voice is critical. What all of us said in 2018, we said what they're trying to do to Alex Jones and social media, they're going to try to do to the rest of us. We've now all witnessed it. Some people paid attention. Some people didn't. Uh, the people that didn't now regret it. So pay attention to what they're trying to do to Jones, just like what they're trying to do in the January 6th cases. 
and stand by them in whatever way you can. You know, sometimes that's not monetarily. Sometimes that's spreading the message. Sometimes that's sharing information. Sometimes that's sharing links, however that's done. Uh, but for those people, I mean, it's a no brainer because he has, he sells products that pretty much everybody needs. So you just find the one that he's already selling. It will be cheaper than what you're buying currently. So you're going to save money while getting to stick it to the man and stand up for freedom in America. Fantastic. I'm going to bring in Eric. Should have given you a heads up. Eric Hunley. Oh, my. Eric, hey, how are you? It's been a while, sir, since you've been on the channel. Yes. Uh, for those watching who may not know who you are, Eric, give us the 30,000-foot overview before we uh, start <laughs> talking shop. Okay. I am a wayward podcaster who collects more channels than subscribers. <laughs> See, at least you, uh, you finally got the unstructured.locals.com inside. the. the you got to put it on the screen. That, that's always key. I'm there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. The, I did love one of my favorite Gobert stories recently. It's like, you know, it's going to be a great Gobert story because it just starts off. I got a call from a guy named Frog. <laughs> You're or, like, hey, dig. Oh. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, that, that, that's all it begins. So I'm, you know, I'm down here in Texas country, and boy, you can feel LBJ down here. The, mm. uh, the, the feeling, the texture, the ranch country, et cetera. It's kind of interesting. I heard you sent a house listing to our intrepid friend. Yeah, one of the people on our locals board, FEMABarnsLaw.locals.com, uh, pointed out that uh, Colonel Walker, General, uh, General Walker, uh, <laughs> is, yeah, you, yeah, I'm sure he would have corrected me too. <laughs> the, uh, uh, but uh, uh, his house is for sale. So apparently, Grobert is going to go down and take a little tour. Yeah, he was uh, just telling me earlier. <laughs> yeah, so the uh, so he was down there, I think, for other purposes in Dallas. Anyway, uh, I'm I'm here in Austin for a couple of weeks. Uh, the may have some interesting visitors next week that might be covering the trial. The uh, so the uh, got a nice good little setup gig here. But you know, I've been watching all the America's Untold stories that have been that I've missed. I've gotten mm. through about like half of the catalog so far. Oh, cool! But very persuasive arguments that I'd always wondered about Tibbet. And mm. and I was like, oh, the dude looks like John Kennedy, uh, and figure. he could use him as a sub because they didn't know for sure how Kennedy would look, and they're thinking we can sub him in in case we got an evidentiary problem, um, and uh, you know maybe they even ultimately did use part of the guy's brain. And the but, bodies got mixed up, and they had yeah. to travel, and yeah, well, it just well, well, a lot of things. Hold on a second, Eric, you're gonna feel this because this is too much knowledge for the layperson. What the heck are you guys talking about right now? Uh, J.D. Tippett's is uh, the guy that they used to prove that Oswald could be a killer. Well, actually, they used Walker prior to that because uh, General Walker had a shot that just went right by his shoulder and into the wall. And it got attributed to Oswald later because Walker said, yeah, it was Oswald. And the Marina Oswald said, yeah, 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 sir. It was, it was him. Well, then Tippett's was a deputy who was gunned down. I mean, he was murdered, you know, cold yep. blood. He was the one they said after Oswald Kennedy. killed after he got caught. That, that right. J, that's right. J.D. Tibbet. Yep, that's him. And his nickname was JFK. Yeah, they, they, if you look at he that, looked that, like that portrait that, right there. That's a combination. Right yeah. Well, especially if you put the left side of his face next to JFK's face like uh, Eric did on the show. And it part is of stunning. it's missing. And think, part yeah. of it missing, you know, think about it. Exactly. <laughs> It'll Man, th those guys planned ahead. The, uh, uh, that, that, well, and we're seeing aspects of it. Missing evidence. Remember all the things that went missing in the JFK case? And mm -hmm. now even more stuff. All this, hey, the Secret Service is back in the middle of stuff again. 
Just like the JFK assassination, people forget how how complicit the Secret Service sure. was. Um, uh, the and especially who was in the Secret Service back then. It's kind of mm-hmm. partially like that again, not fully, but I don't know if you heard Eric. The all everything from January fifth and January sixth of the Secret Service was accidentally deleted. Oh, I all the that texts happens. are gone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As it as it happens, you know, it's like the J. Edgar Hoover LBJ phone conversations. It's still there. Exactly. Exactly. No, <laughs> no doubt about that. But hey, I don't know if you saw Viva your post millennial exclusive podcast of the Steve Bannon trial day one, finishing the top five of Apple that, well, politics podcasts. That's oh. it's nuts. It's very cool. We'll we'll see. All that I know is like from my own perspective, I shoot these segments and then I and I sit there criticizing myself in abstention. I, there's nothing I can do to change it. Ah, they're, they're good. They're nice, you know, 28-minute, concise, boom, boom, well-covered, uh, not pulling any punches. Though you went, you know, because of your interview on War Room, they, they're, you're all over mainstream media. Oh, yeah. No, that's good. It, it's, a, it's a phenomenal thing. I, I don't know what labels mean anymore, but I, I, I enjoy the critique. But you guys, you, you sort of blown my mind here. The theory is that this individual's deceased body mm-hmm. was used... Uh, how? The reason the reason why they killed Tibbet, because uh, it was not just to set up Oswald. It was like the question was always why Tibbet. Nobody could figure that out. And Grobert's theory is that it's because they wanted a double. They wanted mm-hmm. a double that looked like Kennedy, and that's why they shot him the way they shot him uh, was in order to have someone that they could use as a substitute for Kennedy's body if they needed to for any forensic purposes. And they had just enough time. Yeah, exactly. It was it was a double benefit. We get to pin something on Oswald, and uh, I mean, like it may turn out because I always wondered maybe Tibbet found out something, and that's why he got whacked. Maybe Tibbet was in on it, and he got whacked. Mm-hmm. It turns out the guy's bad luck is he looked like John Kennedy. I mean, <laughs> no, that, he that was, was a little it. dirty too. But yeah, it, it's everybody well, was dirty Dallas in Dallas. Cop. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> all you're gonna say is Dallas cop in certain inferences. God bless all the Dallas cops out there. But those inferences, especially back then, kind of went hand in hand. Mm-hmm. The yes. honest cops got purged out, and or ended up, you know, accidentally shot. I didn't know until Grobert pointed out the connection to the thin blue line. I didn't know that was the same process. <laughs> it's a great documentary for people out there. Thin blue line, fantastic, really well done uh, about how the justice system can go so awol. I didn't know. I was like, it figures there'd be a tie, but I was still a little shocked that there was a tie. It's mind blowing though how small these worlds are and and you'll see it every episode we're doing is essentially here's the wikipedia article which is about three sentences he was a businessman in the community and not much else happened to run across fill in the blank then you find out um like demora shelton no he uh was nobility he was tied in he was tied in directly with belarus he came over here he was the um Almost a father to Jackie Kennedy, you know, the future Jacqueline Kennedy, because he was dating her mother, for God's sake. So this guy, who then becomes best friends after he recruits Oswald and puts Oswald with Ruth Payne, and it's just in every single character, it's like, okay, you have three sentences, but then you go lay it out, and we're talking for an hour plus. And just going on and on and on, and there's this, and there's this. Oh, and by the way, there's this. Um, Jack Ruby, General Walker. Uh, now, what the hell would they have to do with each other? Well, they happen to play bridge every week. What what better yeah. connection there? That you was know? the uh, only thing they had in common. 
Well, you know, and there is a lifestyle preferences. Well, let's not talk about Brian Ferry. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was one after the other. I mean, mean, that whole subculture was wild. But Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it is. But you listen to some aspects of the January 6th cases and you see how it got set up. And, you know, we asked Julie Kelly about QAnon. She said the government has been completely not forthcoming about who and what QAnon really is. Hey, he's in the chat. There's what's up yeah. with Lord Buckley in the chat. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, uh, yes. There we go. Oh, <laughs> ah, yes. Is this is this the Buckley? That's him. This... That's him. Oh, you know there was somebody pretending to be you, Viva, in the Joe Neerman oh, yeah. chat. I the, the yeah, Eric. and they fooled Neerman. So oh, he's, he's like, oh, Viva's on him. I'm gonna have Viva live. Viva's finally reached out. The uh, he's like, oh, excited. And they're like, no, no, that's a fake Viva. That was a fake Viva fry. Now the other Viva fries are usually selling Bitcoin. Or uh, uh, or they're porn bots. Oh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> I don't understand what the purpose is of those bots. There's Joe Neerman's got one. They, they, there's one that says Viva Fry supports Justin Trudeau. I don't know. Other than being annoying, I don't. I know. That, I jumped on your stream and control. actually timed them out when you were on the other day. Right. Oh, By yeah, the way, uh, send send Grobert the link. Let's get let's get this full. Uh, sure. Oh, let's get the that? cube of conspiracy going. Uh-huh. Uh, conspiracy. Uh, uh, what's the word? Analysts, not Analyst. here, dude. But uh, people in the chat have never heard of TJ. I, I, I screenshot it because I'm going to go look this up and and I guess have my mind blown. We have an entire episode on it. Oh yeah, just <laughs> give it. It's really good. The Ruth Payne thing. I mean, a lot of this stuff I didn't know. There's so a Kennedy I, playlist if you if you want it. Yeah, yeah. Get in a rabbit hole. We have a whole playlist on Kennedy. Tippets was the first one. Oh. So wh- when was he killed? Uh, he's the, same the one day. that he he's the one that triggers the supposed investigation into Oswald in part. So the uh, supposedly Oswald's leaving his house. Tibbet comes down, asks him some questions. Oswald shoots him and then runs to the movie theater. Except now, Oz, we don't know how Oswald got there because one well, day yeah, it's yeah. a bus, there another was day it's a forensic. cab, and another day is this. So, yeah. Yeah, there was I'm, always evidentiary problems with that premise. But, you know, whoever put it together initially assumed didn't go that much into detail. They were looking at what they needed for a typical state conviction kind of mindset. Uh, but it likely involves Ruby. Uh, that uh, I think that theory makes sense that Ruby was probably the guy that, that did it. What mm. I'm curious about is who, why is T- what the part that hasn't been explained to me yet is who got Tibbet to go there? You know, well, what got, and I guess we, we just don't know. But like who, yeah. what was the lead that led Tibbet to be there? In well, the he, there was a coordination. I mean, he had a phone call and I, I right. believe he was, he was told. And, and Mark, um, part of his thing, because there's like a whole JFK research community and Mark is deep into this. So this is all Mark. It's not me. Yeah. Yeah. And um, his big discovery was, I forgot the other guy, this other guy who was probably a hitman who was involved. Mark figured out that this guy's jacket was underneath a parked car on the tippet crime. And that's what brought mm-hmm. Mark into the fold of all the other JFK people. And that's Ashen. in the tippet episode as well. The, you, well, you know, the, uh, have you guys explored why and how uh, Mark got interested in the Kennedy assassination? You know, I'm just catching up with everything Mark. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's he's like six degrees of separation from almost everything. No, you know, like he, two. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Well, I think the, uh, uh, the, 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 there's actually a tie now with the Moonies because, you know, he had his own issue with the Moonies. I know, we have an episode. The Japanese prime minister. Yeah, exactly. A whole episode about, you know, the, supposedly the Japanese prime minister was assassinated because the assassin was obsessed with the, uh, or the ex-Japanese political leader that was just mm. recently assassinated. Is about Moonies. 
that, that, oh, that the assassin that. was obsessed because as he thought his mother had been bilked out of money and other things related to the Moonies. Oh, never mind. We don't have an episode about the Moonies. Moonies are great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. There you go. There you go. The, uh, you know, I was, I was talking about, you know, with some people, how good jury selection could be in our mutual friend in Virginia's access to certain databases. That will be fun, but that's another topic <laughs> for another day. So the, uh, it's amazing how pedestrian a lot of jury selection is these days, but you know, that's just another section for commentary. Eric, um, before or if Grobert comes in, what are you doing at 915 tonight? Okay, I actually have probably my most personally ambitious episode I've ever done. And I think, um, Barnes, I think you would be interested in it as well, because I believe you like sports betting, you like boxing. You probably have heard of Tommy Morrison. Of course, of course, of course. John Wayne, fake John Wayne. Yeah, well, yeah, the, uh, uh, didn't his, didn't his, no, that was the other, uh, that was the Irish guy who. No, his great uncle who, was John Wayne. Yeah, his great uncle was John Wayne, but I'm thinking of, I was trying to remember whether it was him or the other guy whose trainer threw the uh, towel before Mike Dyson could even land a punch. I mean, look, the Irish guy came in and the, oh. set, the trainer was like, <laughs> get him out of here, get him out of here. We just did this for the money. Um, the uh, But uh, wasn't that someone else that Tyson took out in short order? No. Um, oh, he was... no, did he last? No, he was not. He was scheduled to fight Tyson. Oh, and, and then Tyson he, got. Nope, not not that either. He, he oh, beat George I... Foreman for the heavyweight title. Um, then he lost. Really? Why did um, I not Tyson know that? came out of prison. Well, this is why it's an important story. Yeah. He, he was in Rocky Five for people who want a cultural reference, but he also became a world champion tw- um, twice over, beat George Foreman. Then he lost. But he was reclaiming. He signed a contract with Don King for $10 million to fight Tyson. Tyson had just gotten out of prison and had lost against Buster Douglas before that point. And um, it was all lined up. He had to fight two other fighters on the way to Tyson as part of this contract. All of a sudden, he came up HIV and is dead in 2013. Wow. But that's not the story. This is the thing. His entire life was ruined, right? So here's the narrative. HIV positive, life ruined, goes to drugs, whores, all the good stuff that typically happens. Down in the gutter, trying to rebuild his life, sadly, um, gets full-blown AIDS and dies in 2013. Except for one one niggling little problem with this entire story, and that's what my whole episode is, and it's a long one. He never had HIV, and it's proven in post-mortem autopsies. I have receipts from the widow. It's an interview with the widow, and it's everything. The case just got delivered to the Supreme Court again today, where she's suing Quest Diagnostics, who's in bed with a certain uh, short saint figure in Washington uh, that you love. Yes. I, I Look, I'm not that stupid. I'm just saying, I, the entire yes. time you're saying this, I'm, I'm thinking, I, I listen Quest to Diagnostics. Yeah. That's I, a I great never... setup, by the way. That, that, that's how you sell a narrative. That, that, that's a great premise. You know, boom, 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 and then boom. I thought you were going to screw me over and say, ah, you got to watch the show to find out what the surprise is. No, no. I mean, that's it. But I I think that it's still worth it to watch it because. Oh, definitely. definitely. I I have records, postmortem, you know, it's all there. And I really hope that people do check it out and share. Obviously, I want clicks and views, blah, 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 blah. But I, I kind of fell into it because it's recommended to me. And I feel like with um, like Johnny Depp possibly Marilyn Manson, not sure yet. Um, 
Michael Jackson, whatever. These are people whose legacies have been destroyed. This poor man. Now, consider everybody. Top boxer in the world. Movie star. Everything. One freaking test. And everything just smashed through the gutter. That you're you're nothing but, you know, a a horrible lifestyle. He literally had a press conference saying, "Um, kids, I... I don't want you to think of me as a role model. I'm a ho- because he believed it, and it's right. heartbreaking. So I think that it's an important, important story for his legacy. And Barnes, uh, if you ever want to check it out, um, all the legal documents she you has might- done all this to the. Uh, she's represented herself all the way to the really? Supreme Court, which is pretty damn impressive. Mm-hmm. That is impressive. It's it's amazing to think that like a life of philandering. And and cheating and, and whatever is fine so long as you don't get HIV. But if you get it, then you're a moral failure and you deserve to be ostracized by mainstream society. Unless you're Magic yeah. Johnson and then you get the special medicine and you're fine. Oh, no. But I have so many questions, Robert, after having listened to the real Anthony Fauci. I never knew mm-hmm. the controversy around HIV AIDS in the first place. I never knew it. That's you mean how Fauci, Fauci telling people you could get it in your kitchen? Uh well, that, that and, and I, I never knew that there were different criteria for HIV depending on country. So you had mm. HIV in Canada when you didn't have it in the States. You had it in Africa when you didn't have it in Canada. I, I had no idea. It was I had no idea of anything. The real well, answer also went to great lengths to suppress that a failed polio vaccine might have been the original source of it mm. as well. Mm-hmm. A, a journalist did a whole huge book called The River, made it to a documentary. Mainstream media went to great lengths to suppress that. Uh, because that would uh, change the uh, interpretation of rushing vaccines might not be a great idea. Well, h- how are we going to do this? Oh, uh, Robert, uh, you're, you're look, he, got, he got changed to show up. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> Does he Wait, know he's here? Does oh, yeah, he know okay. he's on here? <laughs> he knows he's here. He's boomering it a little, but he'll get there. He's on the wrong microphone, but we won't bother. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. It might work if I turn the thing on. Now you're sunny, right? <laughs> we can hear you. I, I, I have a thing about men uh, with, uh, people with uh, fedoras. Eric, Eric, hold on. Hold on. Eric, make sure he knows that he's on air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> before something bad happens. Yeah, before the young strippers walk in. Be like, hey, how you doing? Hey, you never know. Uh, all right. Does he, does he know? I'm sure he knows. I mean, Robert's always got like crazy girlfriends. You're on air, Mark. Hey, Mark. No, he doesn't know. No, he, he can't hear us. That seems to work. What Mark, yeah. He's <laughs> okay. t- he doesn't have the speakers turned on. Hold I on, really I'll want to see him. where this goes, I'll but text, I don't yeah. want it to happen. Right. The speakers, that's probably why he doesn't have um, Or the visual. He's not. I don't think uh, he's seeing us either. Let's try it again. Let's try it again. Well, I'm texting him. I don't know if he's got it on. Mark? Mark, you're on air. Oh, he just got your text. I, I really don't want to see something bad happen. We're gonna, we're gonna yeah, wait. Yeah. Just double check. Yeah, the uh, that. The one, oh, no, there, man. there you go. No, now we, now we, no, I can't hear you. Okay, no. well, turn oh, your speakers on, bud. What speakers? Put in some sound buds. Hold on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he Let's might see. be on. Like, uh, the speaker might be set to his. It, it doesn't matter if he plugs it in. He can then set them up. And just I got him headphones, which he, will be good. He knows oh, you get him headphones so the the yeah it's a, it work. It'd actually be nice. He rarely oh, yeah. rarely uses them. This is this is a this, this is called the boomer moment, folks. 
Okay, let's see. People accuse me of being a boomer, but I'm only. No, he is a boomer, like legit. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's a legitimate boomer. (laughs) We're hearing him talk to himself. Holy cow. Holy. There you go. There you go. Voila. Wow. (laughs) What a difference. Yeah, Yeah, sound is good. Wow. Yeah, yeah. You got to see the live boomer experiences new technology. Yeah, look, I'm still having acid flashbacks. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. This I don't even know what you guys are doing here. I just saw a bunch of links and I clicked on something and there these guys are here. <laughs> exactly. Well, what's the topic? It. What are you guys into? Well, we, I, we, you know, I was, I was complimenting the the, the JD Tibbet episode because I had oh, not yeah. thought of the possibility. I always wondered why he got killed. Now, right. what's the theory as to is it the radio call? Why does he go to that location? Why does he go into the setup? Well, he was circling around all morning, visiting a record store and going to the theater. There's quite a bit of dissension as to what this guy's role was. Um, he was had a mistress on the side, apparently. He frequented the Carousel Club. I happen to believe it was this kid, Crawford and Ruby, who did the execution. The You can walk Crawford. from that location to Ruby's apartment in, in literally two minutes. The Oswald thing is like you'd have to be an Olympian to make it. From right. where Oswald's apartment was, that, that dog just does. And you not. think the main reason he got shot was they needed a body double or wanted to have a body double just in case. Right. That, that I mean, the body replace. does disappear for a long period of time. The ambulance disappears. I mean, these are all unexplained mysteries about Tippett. He uh, was called. He was called JFK, by the way, by the yeah. Dallas police. He did look smack. I mean, the, the he, photo he Eric put like up. That. Yeah, but was, Mark, that me, was wild. Let me ask this: Why do they need a body double when they already have JFK's body? So, what would they need an extra? Oh, to body? replace JFK's body. In other there words, was, in case there's a problem and they need to wrong bullet the forensic shipped, evidence. You know, yeah. you know, shipped. No, it went in here. See, look, here's a body. Yeah, yeah. went in there. They, they shipped two caskets uh, back to uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital in Washington, Viva. So the two caskets have been identified by multiple witnesses uh, having been delivered to Bethesda. So there were- was definitely somebody else's brain, according to the, by the audience. Right. Well, some, a lot of people believe the brains were already in Bethesda because it was a school. There were plenty yeah. of formaldehyde brains uh, that the kids used every day for. Um, autopsies uh, quite a bit. And originally they may have thought they, they could keep Texas control over the case. Right. Yeah. That was the original battle. And that was done through uh, gunplay to get his body out of there by force. I mean, there was quite a scuffle with machine guns uh, pulled out and that casket on the gurney was taken by brute force by the secret service. No doubt about that. Not supposed to move the body because it's a state crime. It's a murder. It's a state right. crime. Right. I mean, they were the, the, the coroner was there. They were battling with the county coroner in this tug of war in the hallway of Parkland. You know, and LBJ already left and everybody thought he had gotten on Air Force Two. But he insisted on getting on Air Force One and trying to contact uh, a guy named Curtis LeMay. Yes. Uh, there's oh, quite a bit of yeah, there's quite a bit of Air Force tapes now that have Air Force One tapes that have become available regarding the search for General Curtis LeMay and LBJ's request that he meet him uh, at Bethesda at the airport. See, I mean, to give people an idea, LeMay was so crazy, he even made George Corley Wallace uh, embarrassed. I mean, because of what he said during the 68 campaign. Right. He's like, ah, you know, I'd rather just, you know, if I'm going to die or get hit, might as well be a nuclear weapon. Why not? You know, we just got to well, start yeah. using these nukes. That's why we got them. We got to start nuking some people. He said, let's nuke Saigon. He, uh, or North Vietnam. He said, let's nuke Vietnam. He let's said, he also said, let's nuke Cuba. 
And he um, wanted to nuke Russia, really. He thought, hey, right, we have an edge. Right. So while we have an edge, let's let's just let's just do it. Let's get a George C. Scott style. Let's get it over with. He was George C. Scott. You know, uh, this this you know he was uh, going to get his hair messed a little bit, Mr. President. May use a, lose a couple of million people, but how, how uh, much uh, do you think? Uh, how much was Kubrick informed by some of that? In other words, that you know, oh, the, I've heard stories. Yeah, no, everybody was. I mean, LeMay was very famous. I mean, it, famously. He said if the Japanese had won the war, he would have been tried and executed as a war criminal. I mean, yeah, it he, turns out he came up with firebombing Tokyo at a low level to make sure that they would have the mass, maximum infliction of harm. You know, there's some estimates that he killed 300,000 civilians. Oh, yeah, far with, more than died in the atomic bomb attacks. Right, and the bombing. That's why he was like, what are you guys whining about? I, I killed more on a Tuesday. And the, the bombings of Dresden also, the fire bombings of Dresden. Yeah, he helped come up with that idea. He was a good engineer. He came up with great ways to get around air defense systems. That's how he got escalated so quickly. Well, Eric, well, how old was he when he got his stars? We were talking about this morning. He was. Yeah, he's, uh, he got his fourth star in 1951. Right. And he was 44 years old. He was the youngest general since uh, USS Grant. Right. To wow. become a four star. Right. And he creates the United States Air Force and the whole strategic air command. That's all him, the flying super fortress. He was also the longest serving for or longest person serving as a four star general in military history. Black Rain. Well. Yeah. Black Black Rain. Also the movie. The, oh, that's a good uh, movie. Yeah. Yeah. With, Kirk, with uh, Michael Douglas. Yeah. The, yeah. Well, anyway, I didn't know you guys were doing this. I was just doing my laundry and I saw everybody. <laughs> I saw my name in the chats and I go, who are all these people t- talking about here? This is really weird. So what, well, what did I miss today? What you guys? Uh... Well, we just uh, had a conversation with Julie Kelly. She only had an hour available. So right. She's been covering all the January 6th cases. The uh, the Secret Service has disclosed that uh, they just can't find all of their texts from not only January 6th, but also the day before. That's interesting. That's interesting. Well, regarding uh, documents, when they had the uh, House, the uh, House Assassinations Committee, the ONI showed up and said, literally, we've destroyed all our documents. (laughs) They literally said it out loud in the hearing. And they said, where are all your documents? They said, we've destroyed them all. If that's one aspect that really has, in my view, gone undercovered, because I was telling Mark, I've been catching up on all the you guys, LBJ, I mean, you guys entire Kennedy series. I'm down here in Texas and you get a oh, sense wow. of why they love, like everybody wants to be a pretend rancher down here. They all got mm. these like iron things and iron fences and gates. And you look there, it's like, okay, it's just some ordinary guy's house. There's like no even ranch or land or something, but they want to pretend to be ranchers. You get that LBJ vibe. Oh, yeah. So Takes I told a somebody, I told somebody recently, if we win a certain case or get a desirable outcome, we're going to party like LBJ. Uh, Ooh, the, uh, <laughs> Ooh, that's hard to do, my friend. Yeah. That's going to be my new phrase. The, uh, you just got to get a car that floats. Right. Uh, it, Floating it, it, car. It, that's my dream, Buck. Yeah, yeah and all the that. wives around. Watch out, wives. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that guy was a pure predator. I mean, yeah. pure predator. Well, I was um, telling Eric yesterday, we did a show on uh, Dr. John Brinkley, and we thought maybe he was related to David Brinkley, since they were both uh, from North Carolina. David Brinkley mistakenly or stupidly left his wife behind after a barbecue at the ranch to go do the NBC News uh, back in New York. And his wife was in the guest room in bed and LBJ came in and said, move over, honey, this is your president talking. And got in with, did David Brinkley's wife. Yeah, Very, can you uh, imagine? I mean, the guy was just pure, just pure predator. That's yeah. the way oh, I yeah. described it. Yeah, he, was he was a sociopath. Oh, completely. And he was just always looking for prey all the time. Hunting like a mad dog, like a mad dog with a, you know, looking for a bone. 
Absolutely. The uh, uh, I mean, I mean, Clinton can't get close to LBJ. No, no, like no. For all right. of his pro, nowhere and near it. Not only that, I mean, was, go ahead. I'm sorry, dude. Who was the one that dressed in in women's clothing allegedly behind closed doors? Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover. Oh, Hoover. The yeah, FBI no. director. Right. LBJ knew that also. I mean, when they yeah, arrested, there were neighbors. Well, yeah, that's why he made him. Hey, why don't you do that walk for me, Jay Edgar? Say, Tell <laughs> well, me what that you're was talking about there, LBJ's son. aide was arrested uh, blowing a man at the YMCA bathroom that was staked out by the FBI, and LBJ flipped out, thought it was a Goldwater, uh, uh, you know, dirty tricks, political dirty tricks in '64. And, and Hoover came in and said, no, I'm sorry, Mr. President. We arrested him two years ago also. And LBJ flipped out. This is his chief of staff almost, Robert. I mean, he had to resign immediately because of the incident. It was like three weeks before the election in 64. But it was funny when LBJ was doing it. So, so now, h- how does he talk again, Jay Edgar? Right. Yeah, you can listen to the tapes because LBJ has J. Edgar Hoover come in the office. And he says, now, how do you know? How do these these homosexuals walk? And he says, well, Mr. President, and he starts demonstrating in the office (laughs) how to walk like a gay man in front of LBJ. And LBJ drags it out on the tape. He goes, now, what about his how about them wrists? You know, let me see what he does with the wrist, Jay Edgar. Oh, yeah, you knew it. I mean, that's just classic. That guy was so ruthless. Let let me just look. uh, Someone has a legit uh, point here. So much for banning coverage. Robert, do, do you want to give a 30-second overview of today, or should I do it? Somebody should happened? do it. I don't know what happened. I'd like to. Uh, well, I only saw the, uh, you know, I only saw some headlines, so I didn't see I'll, much, uh, I'll, much I'll, detail. You can watch the post-millennial exclusive later tonight. See, there tomorrow. you go. But, but, I saw <laughs> you on Gateway Pundit this morning. I didn't know. Wow. I, 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 my Google notifications are not coming in anymore as far, as far as that goes. But the summary of the day, Robert, you'll tell me what you think of this. Prosecution rested its case after two witnesses, the, the general counsel for the committee and the FBI agent or investigator who decided to press charges. And that's it. They said, you know, the bottom line people, they got one letter from Trump in waiving the executive privilege on Bannon, which will be interesting in defense. But the, the prosecution closed this case. They had general counsel come in and say, we serve the subpoena. Uh, he knew we had to back and forth. He knew he had to comply. He didn't. And then the investigator say, we looked at some of his posts from before and after the deadlines and the subpoenas. He willfully defied it. We wanted some of his social media posts. All hell's going to break loose. We think he might have known something was going to go down, and that was the purpose of it. Entirely legitimate. Case closed. That's it. And now it's defense. Did wow. How many did they get to ask questions about Benny Thompson's political bias or things like that? So they were trying to ask, you know, now you mentioned, I forgot to mention this in the exclusive at Post Millennial. Um, no, they, they, they asked about political bias and the judge said, the only bias we're going to get into is potentially uh, Amerling, the, the general counsel. We're not going to ask her about other people's bias. And then she testified that they like, they had book groups where they discussed books and they talked politics. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like high school. Oh, it's like high school at a federal government level. It's that's that's all that it is. And, and that's DC in a nutshell. That's DC in a nutshell. Wow. That, that's why it's so disturbing. Well, now, do, Viva, do you ever you, find out what a kangaroo court where that emanated from? Oh, it's from leaps, leaps to get oh, from right. one point to another. They make leaps not, that, that uh, other people could. That right, which makes okay. sense, right? Because right. uh, now, do you think uh, Bannon testifies, Viva? <sighs> My prediction. I didn't. I'm. I don't. I don't think he. <sighs> He's bold. Do you think defense wraps tomorrow and just goes to closing arguments and jury instructions? I, jeez, I, I didn't even, I didn't even think uh, that far ahead. They might call a lawyer now that they have that letter from uh, Trump waiving executive privilege. But Bannon, seeing his uh, his his pre-trial 
speech at the steps of the the, the courthouse. I think he I think he has the audacity to testify. Uh, what would you do, Barnes? Would you just say um, defense rests and call it a day? Did they get in evidence about him volunteering to testify once Trump wrote that letter? Defense, not yet. Um, ooh, I don't know. I, I see. There was some back and forth on that because the correspondence between the committee and Bannon's attorneys was in as to whether or not with, he said, I waive it. I, I raise executive privilege. They say, we don't acknowledge it. Here are your deadlines. That's in. So the question is, um, what's the extent of that in terms of impact? Yeah, it, it, it doesn't say in those letters that he now agrees to appear. If, if that's in the letters, then what? There's nothing he can add and only uh, information he can detract by testifying while also subjecting himself to a perjury and obstruction risk. Wow. You know, I had, I, would, a lo- I had a longer trial at, at the DMV than this guy's going to get. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, welcome, welcome to D.C. Justice. Well, flip, yeah, flip, the, flip side is you, you can have... A, you, you could have a two-week trial with Sussman and be dead twice and still get acquitted. Like, I don't know how Sussman's trial went on that long, and then he gets acquitted nonetheless. So short c- condemnation, long acquittal. It's the D.C. way. Have, have any of you guys uh, sat, actually been picked for a jury? Have I? Yeah, I've been on yeah. juries, yeah. Oh, you have? What, what were the cases? Uh, real estate eviction case was one, um, and I forget what the other case was. Yeah, I've been on a couple, but what was that? What I, they, weren't criminal. they weren't criminal. They weren't criminal. I, I loved case. it. I got. I love being there. Yeah, I love doing it. The yeah. Uh, could, uh, yeah. So do you like? And what do you think of? Did it increase or decrease your confidence in your fellow man? The trial. Well, I put it this way: the trial I just went to was just uh, after five years of suing someone. It ended up in uh, L.A. Superior Court. The most recent thing. There was a woman judge with a mask. There was myself and my lawyer, both in masks. I went to take a She made me sit in the jury box. Um, this is a lawsuit against the rehab. She made me sit in the jury box away from my attorney and away from her. And I tried to take a sip of water from the bottle, uh, <laughs> lifting my mask by myself. And I didn't know anybody was even looking. And she says, if you do that again, I'll have you removed from the court. And I almost jumped out of my skin. I was in, you know what I mean? It was so yeah. shocking that this, she was yelling at me after five minutes in court. Wow. But yeah, that was, that was just a creepy experience. I am. Um, so I was summoned for jury duty in <laughs> duty in Quebec, but then, and I went to show up cause I was eager to do it, but I was ex- uh, excluded, disqualified because lawyers in Quebec can't be jury members, oh, right. which is why I was surprised that one of the jury prospects in, um, in Bannon, was a lawyer who had pending motions in front of the judge. I, I didn't know it was a, a jurisdiction. You, you can, but uh, you, you really shouldn't be. But it tells you how many, there's too many lawyers in D.C. Uh, that's probably well, that's why true. that guy's there. What happened to executive privilege, Robert? Does that not exist anymore? Is that just a traditional thing? Selectively. And, I, mean, the, I don't understand executive privilege anymore. Well, the there's two different issues. One is the contempt aspect, which is they've interpreted contempt of Congress to not allow a good faith mistake of law defense and you're only allowed a mistake of fact defense right. and so consequently uh you can't assert anything like executive privilege attorney client privilege uh dershowitz has said he doesn't agree with the charges against bannon and thinks right. Bannon should prevail on appeal in part because of the issues related to executive privilege um i disagree with that interpretation of the criminal willfulness under the federal criminal statutes i think good faith mistaken law should always be a defense uh, at least in that context, these kind of politically motivated cases um, or just, you know, so-called white collar cases, et cetera. 
the uh, uh, but it's not. So now what's interesting is his own lawyers didn't figure out that he had a mistake in fact defense until the government raised the issue. Yeah. Uh, uh, the government came in and said, well, we're only introducing this to show that they were, they, they were the ones who got all this correspondence in. I mean, the, the defense wasn't going to get any of it in. The government says we want a bunch of it in. And so the defense is like, fine, we want a bunch more. But as part of the objection, the judge made clear if uh, Bannon thought that the executive privilege uh, issue meant that the uh, they were going to, the committee was going to reissue the subpoena uh, with new terms and new dates, and that the reason he didn't show up on the dates given was he thought those dates had been ind- indeterminately continued until there was clarification on what was covered and what wasn't covered by executive privilege. Hmm. That would be a mistake of fact defense, which he does have. Right. But apparently that's the first time he had a defense in this case was thanks to the government being so <laughs> aggressive at what they wanted to introduce. Now, I don't know if his lawyers, how skilled his lawyers are. I saw Joe Nierman's approach. He thought the prosecutors were weak, thought the defense lawyers were kind of average. Uh, he thought some of their jury selection was real dubious. Right. I mean, you're Steve Bannon. You have the resources you do and you don't have meaningful jury selection. I mean, the irony is jury selection team. He knows one of the great jury selection people, which is Richard Barris. I mean, that's who I use all the time. And, you know, the, he could have used Barrist to argue for transfer of venue. I don't even know if they ever filed such a motion. Same with juries. Lawyers think they know tons about jurors. And it's they weird. don't have a clue. They, 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 I mean, like John Grisham had this stereotype that all fat women were terrible. I mean, it was just a, it, it's that kind of idiotic biases that govern right. most law. They think they can pick a juror. They have no clue. Um, I mean, you know, you should, if you're going to do it right, you should have someone that's a professional, someone that's a data person someone that's a body language person. You should have access to their data. I mean, especially these days. It should look like Runaway Jury, which is a 20-year-old movie. That's what your jury selection capability should look like. Uh, There's certain things you can't do that are dramatizing the movie, but 90% of what's in there you can do. You can look up someone's old social media trail. People don't know there's 400 data points. Uh, You know, maybe we'll do it one. We'll we'll do it somehow with Richard. We'll probably do Eric. We'll say, let's see what Eric's really been up to. And get his, you know, four hundred well, data points and, and all that. But Eric, that- er, yeah, Eric and I went over this a little bit in the Garrison case when we were talking mm-hmm. about William Joseph Bryan, who came in from the Sirhan case. Eric, remember? Mm-hmm. And he was doing some. He was he wrote the book, the Chosen Ones, and he was analyzing the jury. He helped invent jury selection. He invented American. jury selection, and he came from the Sirhan case, and he went to New Orleans supposedly on vacation. And uh, was hey, doing. Just showed up. Uh, you bring into Clay Show. How you doing? Oh, you got right. to travel. Well, let me help you out. And he analyzes in the book the chosen ones, which I gave Eric a copy. Here he's got a copy of it. In, wow, in that book, he he analyzes the jury selection that the Garrison case has. Uh, just off the cuff, they were all working stock, uh, working class guys. There were, I think, two or three African Americans, yep. all blue collar guys, and oh, he was, man. Did, did women not, were they not allowed to sit on the jury in Louisiana? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't say Almost that in the book. It has to be, right? Yeah, it had to be. It had, it had to be, be all men. But and it was. Made him, made him wear suits, the judge did. In between, right, uh, right. you know, smoking and uh, banging hookers. Right. My question is, I look at Bannon and he's so disheveled all the time. Do you recommend your clients get dressed up when they go to court, Robert? I say look authentic. That's what I tell him. So the, right. uh, now in Snipes' case, you know, once he, he liked our defense. Uh, you know, uh, if crazy was criminal, half of Hollywood would be in prison. I got this outfit from Wesley Snipes, by the way. Really? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. Hey, uh, uh, Viva learned always when you're in Vegas, uh, I don't even play any roulette, Mark. 
Always been on black. Always been on black. How do you that, like this? Barnes is making it sound like we took down the house. I mean, we got I got yeah, 75 bucks. Money? I guaranteed he made money. You tripled your money. You, tripled, yeah. you went from down to up. That, no, that's I, a good deal. I quadrupled my losses into the profit. It was great. From negative yeah. 25 to plus 75. And I came home a winner to my wife. How do you there like you that? How do you like Fremont Street? Uh, you know what? Fremont Street was I was actually... trying to get Viva to take some photos. And some <laughs> no, of the, no, no, no. Uh, Viva was like, no, 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 no. If you see the video, I, I en passant, scrolled to people who had American flags painted on their boobies and bums. It right. was, uh, I'm a married man, but yeah, it's, I felt better on Fremont Street than I did on the main strip because I, this is without judgment. It's, it's a bad state of affairs. There were a lot of uh, uncomfortable people and unsavory people on the main strip where you like, you go under underpasses, you go through these tunnels and anybody who's seen the movie irreversible, you can tell they're never not armed. Oh, well the, I mean, Grover <laughs> uh, almost got flagged, couldn't come into the, to dinner because the, if they'd had a shooting on Fremont, so they upped the ante in terms of security. And that's why it was so, when Viva yeah. was there, so cool and smooth. But yeah, uh, uh, Mark almost got stuck at the door. At the we, were, we were there a long time, Robert. I mean, yeah. and there's no reception. I texted you. That yeah, we're at not down in that restaurant. That I restaurant, I realize no, that cell phone doesn't work at all. Yeah, I realize that you were with bad company. I was with company that doesn't have driver's licenses because they've crashed so many sports cars that the <laughs> state of California <laughs> took away their driver's license. I had to drive home with Batman at 140 miles an hour in a Maserati. <laughs> uh, <laughs> where where did you guys eat when you were in Vegas? Uh, Barry's, uh, which is the down the uh, the uh, the place at the Circa. There was you talk about interesting viewing. There was a lot of interesting viewing that <laughs> yeah. night at the Circa. The uh, but Barry's the old school guy. It's it, it's named after the chef owner. Uh, Circa is one of the is the newest, coolest casino built in Vegas, in my view. Built downtown of Fremont Street, sort of more upscale version. Big sports better. I know the uh, uh, the, the the owner of the the place. Huge sports better. Run into him a couple of times. But uh, he he gave a really cool chef in Vegas his own place, and it's a, it's like down in this it's old school Vegas. It feels like old school Vegas, but done in a contemporary way. Uh, and uh, so yeah, it's a cool place, great place to you know grab some steak, grab some grab some food. Uh, it was good. Food was good. Very Mark, good. I got to ask you a question. You look like you've changed backdrop. Have you moved recently? No, no. I think it's the reverse camera angle that you're seeing my uh, my place in reverse. Okay. I, I, I appreciate the fact that there's no purple in your backdrop. Purple seems to be the backdrop of everyone on YouTube these days. Really? Wow. Yeah, except for the Rebels. Um, I don't have purple. All of us are Rebels. Do you have the, 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 the uh, merch cup? No, I, I have it in the kitchen, but I do have my New Orleans key to the city back there, Viva. If you, ah. if you take a look, that's uh, over my right shoulder. Oh, okay, very nice. I see it's that. The now. key to the city, New Orleans. How I've did got- you get that again? Putting on the world's largest toga party at Tulane University, which was <laughs> Otis Day in the Nights. Yeah, no, the world's the Guinness Book of World Records was there, and there was something like eighty thousand people in togas, and we had Otis Day in the Nights. It was a whole Magilla, you know. So the well, mayor, the mayor it, gave me the key. Was it Animal House? What inspired that idea? They called us down there because of Animal House. Yeah, I mean, the school invited us to come down and put it on at, when I was at National Lampoon in nineteen eighty nine. So Almost we, Law school at Tulane. Tulane, yeah, a lot of a lot of people did some devious things at Tulane, including Dr. Robert Heath, who was the Jolly mm-hmm. West of Tulane, and a lot of stuff going on. Oswald infiltrated the student movement in Tulane, uh, working for Guy Bannister at the time, and uh, Tulane was a hotbed of Cuban activity back then. Yes, yes, because I mean, because New Orleans was a perfect cross section to build the crime of the century. It was Casablanca. 
It really yes. was. It was Casablanca. I mean, there was spy versus spy, including Ted Cruz's father, Viva, who apparently yeah. killed the president. <laughs> well, was on the, was on the corner. I always loved it when Trump would, you know, launched on him because he wanted Ted Cruz to drop out after Indiana. Right. He wasn't dropping out yet. So Trump launched his whole routine that Roger Stone and some other and Alex Jones had been talking out about the day before, which was what was Ted Cruz's dad doing down there in New Orleans, hanging out with Lee Harvey Oswald? Might he have been at the Grassy Knoll? And Ted Cruz just went nuts. Yeah, I was in the intersection that of that because I worked for David Pecker at the Inquirer, oh, yeah. and the, you know, and the Weekly World News. And Pecker was involved with Trump in that storyline about Ted Cruz's dad. And assassination. No, I mean, so, Pecker was the guy paying off a lot of people. For Pecker Trump. paid a lot of people off. If that's a Peter Pecker, such a perfect name, by the way. Yeah, such yeah, a perfect I mean, name. Yeah, it, it, it's extraordinary. You know, is he still? Because he took some hits, and it seemed like he dis- disappeared a little bit after all. Everything broke in twenty seventeen. Out, I think him and he definitely Trump. had a falling uh, out. The interesting thing about Pecker was when the anthrax hit his photo building and killed the photo editor of the Inquirer, that's when I went down there right after the anthrax attack. And he had asked uh, governor Bush to come in and clean up the building because it needed uh, like, you know, hazmat vacuuming of anthrax and Bush refused to do it. And he, and the cost was over a million dollars to Pecker to do it. And he refused to do it. So they put yellow tape around the building with the anthrax and a guy came by and bought it. And his name was Rudy Giuliani for his new security firm. Wow. Yeah. Everybody in the chat is freaking out over Pecker. Like in different milieus, I grew up, I knew many Peckers growing up. You did? Oh, did you? They were very nice. Intimately, I hope. Some some of them were harder, uh, harder (laughs) than others, but okay. I'll I'll shut my face there. Um, Grobert. Yeah. What do you guys have on the menu for this week? Oh, David Ferry. We're going to do, we're getting uh, next week. Next well, week, we're going to Tuesday. Did, David Ferry. Did Joe Pesci nail him? Yes, he absolutely did. Oliver couldn't shut up about it. It was impeccable what he did. Impecker, uh, impeccable what he did as uh, David Ferry. Now, Ferry, like I was explaining, it had alopecia, the same disease <laughs> that Will Smith's wife had. He was hairless and he put on the wig. But he would paint on the eyebrows, and sometimes he painted them on cockeyed, or there was one this way, one that way. But um, the, he had no hair on any part of his body. We're doing a Q and A on Friday, though, about, in between so. about the assassination. Yeah. yeah, 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 another one. I guess we but, can I mean, go wider. But David Ferry ran apparently fifty to seventy-five CIA missions over Cuba, Robert, uh, yeah. and t- be- before the assassination, having nothing to do with it, and was a pilot for Eastern Airlines, was fired for predatory sexual practices, tried to become a priest, got fired uh, trying to become a priest for the same thing, and was uh, in charge of the civilian air patrol in New Orleans, which had Oswald as a member, which they he denied, they denied for years until that photo appeared of him and Oswald. And remind me, who was it that set up the civilian air patrol? A guy named D.H. Bird, uh, D.H. Bird, right. nicknamed, nicknamed Dry Hole Bird because he drilled for so many wells in Texas okay. and 90% of them came up dry. So he was laughed at by these Texas oil men, although a multimillionaire hit a bunch of wells. And he bought a building the year before the assassination smartly. He was LBJ's best friend. So he bought a building uh, called the Texas School Book Depository Building. So <laughs> own that a uh, year later at the time of the assassination. By the way, 
I feel like a dirty pervert because when someone said dry hole, I didn't go to I didn't go to oil rigging people. I went somewhere else. Oh, oh, that's sick. You're just sick. (laughs) That is sick, bro. Speaking speaking of well, they both involve oil if you think about it. Well, oh, thereof, it's on, both of them are a lube club. <laughs> uh, <yes. laughs> I, 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 will, I will not pick. Hold on. Why can't I find the damn? Oh, what, you mean, I, are, you, are you looking for his dumb and dumber haircut or no, his TV Herman outfit? Son of a gun. You know what? I, I, I don't even know where the window is anymore. I, I can't find the window. I am forgiving on people. I will not pick on anybody with eyebrow issues because people have eyebrow issues. But right. uh, I'll pick on Trudeau for other reasons. But it's just funny when you mentioned it. <laughs> There were a number of pictures of Trudeau with with eyebrow issues. Um, wow. wow! I'm not sure that he's actually gotten the tattoo, but I think he might have a nervous tick and pull out his eyebrows if I'm projecting. Whoa! Whoa! Um, can that you? Would, think- you know what though? I, I I refuse to believe that because that would imply he has a conscience. Okay, but that's an interesting thing. So, like, I I say like <laughs> Trudeau. This is projection, people. I I might compulsively pick out hair. Like it's called trichotillomania. For anybody who doesn't, know. I know someone who has that. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a form yeah. it's a form of OCD. It's it's a, an extension. Right. Yeah. Um, I was thinking like Trudeau might have this, but that would involve that would imply that Trudeau, when he's not selling out the nation, mm-hmm. screwing people in prison, he sits in his bedroom. It's like I feel so bad about what I'm doing, and I gotta like right. That's why I have issues. Ooh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. But uh, Etienne de Gaulle says, "Can we make this a weekly thing?" I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna take that under advisement. Take actually. it under advisement. I don't have a job. This is all I do. <laughs> you and me both, Mark. Let's do. Yeah, it. I don't even have a job. I mean, I'm semi-retired. I live in Florida. Uh, you live in Florida? No, I'm kidding. I'm just. Okay. <laughs> I was gonna say, dude, you come over. Or I'm coming over. We'll see what right. happens. Well, I'm um, gonna be down there. So, uh, w- w- the interview is next Tuesday. The my job interview at the no, DMV. No, no, the, uh, the the next the next uh, uh, exclusive with with Hundley on America's Untold Stories. No, fri- Friday is a no a Friday. Q&A. We have a Q and A, and then next week will be Ferry, which gives more time because a lot of these shows take time to prep. Yeah, it takes because, me a long right. time. I have to cross reference all the mentions of Ferry in this particular case, David Ferry, who and then I redo the art and try to get you know all that put together or whatever. We try to get videos and then get struck by copyright people immediately. Any video we put up i could put up my home movies my grandmother from the grave will copyright strike me hey we made it with buster keaton <laughs> we made it with buster keaton that was that was I, a I, close call i got a copy strike uh it was my first sponsored video with with american hartford gold i got a copy strike at fifty thousand views and i and i i contested it i'll see what happened uh this is for robert which is the worst or which lawyer is worse? I mean, Dan Abrams uh, uh, means well. Tribe is just ideologically kind of crazy. I mean, I disagree a lot with Abrams, but Mark Elias is a uh, is a skilled lawyer for corrupt causes. So right. that that's the difference. A- Abrams is you know the son of Floyd Abrams. His sister's a judge. He runs and owns Law and Crime and a bunch of other ones. He's the ABC lead legal news analyst. Uh, we've sharply disagreed on a range of topics over time, but I, I don't doubt his sincerity. Um and and tribe is just nuts. I mean, smart guy, but he's crazy, he's nuts. ideologically he's crazy. crazy. He's crazy. He's whereas crazy. Elias is sharp, sophisticated for corrupt clients. So well, you know, Mark Elias is like you were saying, Walter Sheridan, uh, yeah. RFK's guy, who was a lawyer, mm-hmm. ex deep state guy, and you know, uh, I was on MBC. Same dynamic, same Far more dynamic. influential kind of guy. Right, a fixer, a fixer. Yeah, a fixer. Clearly yeah, a fixer. Yeah, yeah, old school fixer. Yep. Somebody's got a point uh, that Nick Gertada, we were talking about Abrams, has a tutorial on disputing copyright claims with uh, Abrams. It, well, it, it's, I, it's very colorful. 
<laughs> and I'll, I'll say this. I don't want to get into YouTube drama about throwing shade or whatever the term is at Kurt. The I know that some of the... Oh, he clearly them. asserted way too many. Uh, I get why, but yeah, you know, yeah. I still... Because the first time I remember him doing that was he did a righteous rant at me because I was making fun of... I was criticizing people who believe in standing. I was criticizing standing. I wasn't really criticizing people who believe in standing. But he took it as a kind of personal thing. And he had a rant that was just funny as funny as the Dickens. It's like, <laughs> F you, Barnes, blah, 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 blah. I was like, this is great. I shared it with a bunch of people. Because somebody else got it, you know, clipped it, put it up. And I shared it with my brother. He he was laughing for like an hour. He's like, this is great. The uh, But I guess he didn't like it, so he copyright struck it. And took it down. Yeah, that, that's fair game. It's his business. The uh, I thought it was funny, and I, you know, I didn't think it was funny at him. I thought it was you know, a good righteous rant. That's right. kind of funny right. when people get mad at you. I've had proxy. I've had people get much madder and do even crazier stuff. That's fun, but uh, but clearly he went a little crazy on the copyright strikes. Um, you know, he was just he, he, you know he, he got a little irritable. <laughs> well, now he was targeted by a whole crew of people. He who was clearly one. Good but, God. He, he 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 the same guy sets himself up for a video because uh, who was it um obviously whatever yeah obviously yeah he did videos talking literally yeah. about yeah. copyright claims right. and, and honestly they did more work on him than Sargon ever did on her because they yeah. cut up an entire scenario they did a pink trip yeah. on him yeah trying to go after the, the 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 you know some of the people might have been trolls i think some were sincere commentators that had their own perspective i think divine and there's some other ones that are clearly oh sincere. divinity yeah she hates them divinity. And, and, yeah. and she's oh, yeah. doubling down and down and, and it's yeah. like, Dude. Yeah. all that did that, that was all it's gonna happen and to be honest with you i guess he went a little crazy when joe nearman mentioned it but that the dating video thing was funny. I mean, it was clearly somebody would, put a clip together, that, but I was like, that's some funny. He should have taken a bathrobe. I, I kept saying he should get like a bathrobe and then show up and be like, well, you know, ladies. And then just yeah. double down on it. I he mean, said, embrace it. it. Embrace. I mean, what he said was the best trait in a woman is a very interesting statement. But, you know, <laughs> hold, on, yeah. hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. What he likes what? in a woman. What he Most likes player. in a woman. Yes. What was it? I, I didn't hear it. It was, uh, a, it was something phallic. I don't know. Oh, was yes. it him? Was the answer him? Yes. Oh, yes. A little Very bit more specifically, a little bit more direct. <laughs> Very direct. <laughs> I'm keeping it PG. He was funny. See, I, I, I was just to call it. I was a Peter principle. Okay. I was just about to say the kids aren't home, and now the kids. The, you know, oh, they, they can't hear anything, people. They can't ah, okay. Hear anything. Oh, See, very good. Very yeah, good. That's smart. That's smart. That's here. smart. That's smart. See, how do you like? There. How do you like what Sotomayor said about Judge Thomas? Those oh, I didn't com- see that. I mean, well, I heard her say something real nice today. Yeah, that's what he I said. He's one of the that he's one yeah. of the nicest people. He's he's nice to everybody. Right, uh, right. Nice that, the, this is know. driving the left crazy, Robert. Well, well I mean, didn't he knows R- RGB and um, yeah. um Scalia, Scalia they're like same, super same buddies thing. and they go out every day and oh yeah, argue on the court, but they were just really tight friends. Uh, they were. Yes, that was true until he got the pillow treatment at the hunting lodge. <laughs> <laughs> Again with Barnes. Yeah, listen, uh, you're the first. I have him on speed dial. I mean, <laughs> are you kidding me? So, by the way, uh, I have recently found out you have to pay your water. You have to uh, sign up for water when yeah. you move into a place, and we didn't, yeah. and we don't have water, so we got. Oh, uh, Jesus! Oh, we got seltzer for the for the next twenty four hours. You could drink it out of the pool down by the clubhouse. Well. We could do that, but you, you can't. The pool, the pool water is uh, 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 
chlorine. It's ca- it's chlorine. chlorine. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we have to, we have a bucket by the toilet. It's uh, it'll be a fun 24 well, hours. Well, you're just prepping for a hurricane, David. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You literally are. You don't you know something. that, but you are doing it. Kill keep an eye bathtub. on that dog. You got to keep an eye on that dog because there's, there's alligators everywhere. I, the there. dogs don't walk without a leash. And one of the dogs, I have a good mind. The alligator doesn't care. Yeah. They'll eat the leash too down there. Yes. They don't care. <laughs> No, it's, we'll see. S- someone, Robert, on our Viva Barnes Law locals.com said, get a generator. Yeah. But now, so, like, I'm so stupid. What do I do? I get a generator. What do I right. have to do? I have to hook it to the mainframe of No, what you need to do is hire an electrician. Make sure it's at least a 5K generator. Ask him to have a reverse polarity so that way you can kick on the generator, um, turn off your main power, flip on the generator power, plug it in the house, and then your house will be run off your generator. I need an adult. And you I can think, actually think, set it up on. to be automatic as well. There. Eh, I, Eric, I, I knew, Eric I knew, over in a couple I knew, of hours I knew Eric would have all the survival. Yeah, 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 yeah. he's got it going on. He's going to come in a couple hours. Fix he's probably got out. like an El Chapo tunnel built underneath that. <laughs> yeah, dude, are you kidding? Goes right I, into the ocean. He's got a sub. Yeah, and then hey, I, I, I've already been called CIA. You know, I have to have survivor skills. I was just going to say, cute that kid is. I knew Eric was intelligent. I knew it. I knew. What do you want? Oh, he's got a cute. Hold on. You want to say something to the world here? Okay. He does a great vivabarnslaw.locals.com. Oh, oh, oh. Ethan, Ethan, you want to do one vivabarnslaw.locals.com. This this podcast is brought to you by Nabisco. Bravo, Bring him back for unstructured um, double. Nah, yeah, uh, he he missed up. That uh, would be a tough one for him. <laughs> Uh, what do we got here? What do you think about the prospect of the provinces seceding as a group and reforming and country without hijack? Nil, zilch, uh, impossible. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. Flat tax direct to the provinces. No, it's not I that. guess it, the closest to is Quebec actually thought about that for a little while, right? Well, it was it was Quebec was like one percentage of a point away from the public vote for the separation. The issue was then. Even if they had 51% popular vote, what happens then? And it wasn't clear that they could even do it constitutionally. So there's still a debate. Even if you get the vote, you got to get the vote and then bring it to the courts. Well, tell them about the QLF, Viva, how how violent they were back then in the 70s. They they were worse than the Weather Underground. No, they're like IRA. It was like like the IRA, IRA, Viva. Didn't your dad like witness some of that? Uh, so none of us had any. No, I went to law school with uh, the the grandson. Uh, he's a friend of mine, uh, the grandson of of, of uh, Pierre Laporte, who the guy was that was actually. No, I don't want that. I don't want that. Who Stop was it. killed and later. Uh, but I, my kid went to school next to one of the spots where uh, a mailbox was blown up uh, during mm-hmm. that, that 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 crisis. The kid wants me to eat something. Eat it. Oh, it's poop. You can't it's eat that. Disgusting. Poop. It's disgusting. Where did you where did it where did you go to McGill? No, I, I I went to McGill for undergrad and then Laval for uh, Laval Université Laval for law school. Right, right. Um, that was the most disgusting, sour thing I've ever tasted, and he knew it, and he knew it. But now, Eric, but you tasted it, yeah. Laced uh, with acid, know, I, probably. I, I took a big chance because that could have been. In, he's you're going to be tripping in about five minutes. He's putting it into his <laughs> shirt. I don't even know. Eric, uh, you're going to have a premiere now, and everything yes. is going to be directed from here to there. So, how does that work? And what's the what's the premiere? We've we've discussed it, but um, how does it work? Uh, essentially, when you close this off, it supposedly, I guess, it works. Everybody, if they just stay watching, it'll just go boom. It's the next video that's playing, and it, it'll kick off at uh, nine fifteen. I'm really hot on the topic. I, I think it's a I think it's an important show. It, it really is. The guy's you know, lost his entire legacy. And I, I would love to see 
uh, I, I've heard back from her earlier today that the Supreme Court screwed up her paperwork. So they, they scanned every other page. So she's got to get with them to get the thing scanned in. But it's kind of a big deal. Um, she she got up to the Supreme Court before. She's fighting with the Ninth Circuit. And she's fighting the Nevada Gaming Commission. And again, this woman on her own has gone up every freaking step of the court. And she's piggybacking off of a convicted murderer to get the DNA evidence brought in because they found a tissue sample of uh, Tommy Morrison. And she's saying, you know, test the stupid sample. Because what they're trying to say is, what are you talking about? You know, statute of limitations. You know, that was 96. What? And she's like, you know, hey, this this is coming about. And all of this came about like she found the um, the contract with Don King. That turned up like uh, four or five years ago, and it, it's it's been a long, long haul. I kind of got lost. I mean, she was going through every legal step on the way, and I'm just like, God, can I get one of the lawyers here? Because I'm just going, certiary, what? <laughs> so but, she, um, and, and she's seeking relief from the fact that they falsified the test results. Not only, here's where it gets crazy. They're claiming that he never was tested positive. And this is a really interesting part. And then the Nevada Gaming Commission um, stated, oh, no, well, yes, but we are applying the rules. And then she turned it up that the rule that they created was 97 and the test took place in 96. So if there was a test, it was illegal. Um, and then it gets better because I asked her the, the question of, okay, so how if everybody says no he was never tested positive the doctor on hand said nope wasn't tested positive no the test he took wouldn't even do it it's not even legitimately for that it's a homebrew test and i'm like okay so how did it get out because the press stamp sure reported he was hiv positive and then flat out said it was, there were aids deniers and everything else and it turns out that at quest diagnostics the woman who called the commission Happened to be married to the chief guy at Yahoo Sports in charge of combat sports, a journalist. And for some reason, all the journalists had descended on the place before it even happened. And how did they know? Anyway, so there's there's so much chicanery involved. It's a, a really, really long, convoluted story, but it I, I think it's important. And the, uh, the other factor is, you know, he, he died very young. He died at 44. And he looked awful. He looked like he had AIDS. If I but may, if I may ask the obvious question, yeah. did he did, did he end up taking the medications that were pre prescribed for HIV at the time or AIDS at the I time? I think he did for a bit, and then he, you see, he thought he he thought he was HIV positive, and he even did a press conference saying, "You know, kids, don't hold me up as a role model." It's a heartbreaking conference, and he took it for a while, and then he was like, "You know what? Why am I always feeling good? What is going on here?" I'm supposed to be on death's door. Well, why am I fine? Because remember, supposedly he had it. Some people claimed it back in 89. Now, 89 is a death sentence. I'm sorry. I remember those days. So how in the hell did he last? I mean. Well, there's an so interesting explanation for that in Robert Kennedy Jr.'s book about Fauci and the AIDS uh, debacle. Yes. And this is an RNA test, by the way. Yeah. It takes up a big portion of the book. <laughs> about uh, the difference between AIDS and HIV uh, positivity and how he mangled this entire thing, Fauci, back he in the He had neither, day. though, Mark. Right. Neither. No, no, I don't know about that case. I'm just Which saying is in, crazy. The, in the book. Yeah, I'm just talking about RFK's book. He, he spends a lot of time talking about Fauci's involvement with uh, the AIDS crisis. The real yeah. Anthony Fauci. 
Highly recommend books. Highly so, recommended. So as we exit, it will automatically go to your show, Eric. That's the hope. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, that with it. We'll find out. Say hi what? in the comments. I'll be in there hanging out and um, hope everybody enjoys it. People okay. do it. And, and, and Robert, I might see you next week. All right. <laughs> all right, people. Enjoy the evening. Good night, Thank everyone. you. Good night. Thank all you.